You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since Everybody, welcome to the GGTMC. We are back. We are ready to party, ready to boogie, ready to record. Um, all those things that we like to do at 4.30 in the morning on a Sunday. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. We would rather not sleep. We would <laughs> rather uh, do this. No, it, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, not complaining, man. I swear I'm not. <laughs> It sounds like I am, no matter what I say now. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, you're done. Yeah, yeah, I lost it. I lost that one. <laughs> sounds like I'm just bitching and moaning, but I'm not, believe it or not. <laughs> Actually, you know, this this doing the show gives me more of a jolt of energy in the mornings than drinking coffee does. It's the weirdest <laughs> thing. Like, I can wake up early on a Saturday and drink coffee and be, you know, moderately okay, but I do this show. Drink well, obviously I'm drinking coffee too, but I do the show, and then you know it takes me a whole hour to two hours to get wound down again. Uh, I think it's the adrenaline, you know, pumping, talking about movies, something I love to do. So there you go. Now, there you go. now I'm complimenting this. There we go. That was better. Nice save. Yeah, good save. I think too. Well done. <laughs> All right. Um, this week we got. Some uh, fun stuff to talk about. We got Get Crazy from 1983 with Alan Arkish. Um, a, a film that's notoriously been tough to get out because of uh, copyrights and all kinds of legal stuff. A lot of music in there. And um, it's kind of a shame that it took so long, but I mean, that is what it is. I mean, it's the legal world. What are you going to do? I mean, it. <laughs> I mean, that. I'm just surprised it took so long. I mean, maybe somebody was waiting for an audience to build up for it, too. I mean, I think the audience has always been there, but every now and then you run across films like this. Uh, but anyway, it is getting a Blu-ray release this year, I believe. I believe it's supposed to, yeah. Yeah, I think it was. Was it ever on DVD? It was on VHS at some point, obviously. I think it was on DVD. 
Because if I'm remembering right, that's how I first saw it. Mm. It was on DVD. I think how I first saw it was a bootleg copy. So, And oddly, that's how I watched it this week because it was on YouTube and there you go. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, stuff that's been difficult to see over the years has become obviously easier to see over the years. So, uh, Which is both a blessing and a curse, I guess. Uh, and we're also doing American Psycho from 2000, directed by Mary Heron, um, which ought to be an interesting conversation as well. So, crazy, psycho, that's what we're doing. We're getting crazy and psycho up in this biatch this week. Yes. <laughs> I was trying to be hip. It didn't work out really that well. I was going to, I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah, yeah. It's probably, probably I was going to let that one just lay there. That was probably a bigger detriment to the quality of this show than my earlier comments. <laughs> Your hipness? My, or lack thereof, I guess we should probably say. <laughs> Man, pretty soon it's going to be nothing but fucking dad jokes. It's getting close to that as further oh, we go yeah. along here. <laughs> All right, let's get into what we've been watching. I haven't watched Jack shit, so I'll let you pontificate a little bit on what you've been up to. All righty. Uh, not as prolific a week as normal for me, uh, but a few things here and there. Uh, I did a rewatch of All That Jazz. Uh, I didn't talk about this last week, did I? No. No, okay. Um, yeah, did a rewatch of All That Jazz, Mr. Bob Fosse. And it's funny to me that uh, I like his movies more than I would think that I would like Bob Fosse movies. Mm -hmm. Because every single time that I think of Bob Fosse, and I think that this is kind of uh, the prominent thinking in uh, in culture in general is they think of uh, Robin Williams in the birdcage uh, <laughs> yeah. doing his uh, his little shtick there yeah. with the fussy, 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 all that. Uh, and, I, you know, I certainly do it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, all that jazz is, is fantastic. Uh, it's so – it zips along. It's so inventive. Uh, it's, you know, it's pretty nasty once it gets to the end because it really doesn't, uh, doesn't spare feelings uh, or anything else. Um, and it looks fantastic and, you know, it just, uh, I, it's one of those things that you kind of have, you really have to kind of experience, especially with, uh, Roy Scheider, yeah. uh, in the lead who you would not think of, uh, as being, a uh, a, a dance, uh, a dance guy at all. Yeah. Uh, but he completely sells it. Uh, and plus it helps that, you know, he looks like a, you know, he's got that hang dog look to him, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that just fits the, uh, the world weary sort of character that he's playing. Uh, and then you have that that fantastic ending, uh, and probably one of the best final shots uh, of a movie uh, of the seventies, and that's you know some competition uh, yeah. right there. Yeah, that uh, I think if you go into that knowing that it's a movie about obsession or perfection or something, yeah. I think yeah. you get a lot more out of it. I, mean, you know, I think a lot of, on the surface, I think a lot of people would probably not watch it, thinking it's about. It, well, they're going to think it's a musical, and yeah. it's all just about yeah, just yeah. all just about the show, and it's really yeah, there's a lot more going on there. A lot more going and on, that's yeah. funny because you know Fosse's filmography in general, I think, is very much based on uh, obsession. Um, yeah, yeah, we kind of talked so, about Star Eighty, right? So, yep, yep, and that's certainly in there. Uh, so yeah, did a rewatch of that, uh, and for those who are interested, uh, and I've said this before, I do believe the Criterion sale of Barnes and Noble fifty percent off is still going on, so. I think it's through November 30th, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So mm -hmm. you could snag yourself all that jazz and Les Samurai, which was another movie that I watched this week. Never heard of it. this week. Never heard of it. I never heard of it either. Um, 
But boy, howdy, it was great. It's one of those French movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there was, you know, I had to do a lot of reading oh, uh, with uh, with words. Well, not a whole lot. The there's, not, the... there's not a whole lot of talking in there, is there? <laughs> well, that's kind of the beauty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although they're actually, what the, with the cop there is. Yeah, they're with the, the cop there is. But I think one of my favorite things about that film, and I don't mean this, I don't mean this to sound crass or as an insult, but, you know, it, it's it's a quiet movie in a lot of ways, and uh, mm-hmm. so there's not a lot of subtitles, uh, you know. And some of it's 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 definitely a study in cool, right? Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, and we we covered this on the show a little while back. So yeah, I don't think I was on that episode, but I mean, yeah, it was, you were not. Yes, uh, it was me and Will. Oddly, uh, an online handle named uh, Samurai, and uh, I wasn't on that one. But and you fumbled the ball. I did. I had a lot uh, to say about that one, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Could make it. We could maybe we'll revisit it down the road. Um, but yeah, no, I mean this is. I mean it's it's Melville, and Melville is easily uh, my favorite of the uh, French New Wave directors. Uh, I love just about every movie of his that I've seen, um, and I've seen the the majority uh, at this point. Uh, there's a couple there that uh, that I haven't. Um, and yeah, I mean to watch Alain Delon. Do his uh, his thing, his quiet, cool thing, and just kind of go along and seeing how much of this got riffed on by uh, by other directors Everybody. through yeah. and to today. Yeah. Uh, most especially guys like uh, Wu yeah. uh, that everybody loved in the eighties and nineties. Um, and uh, yeah, Robert I mean, Rodriguez this thing is just it's brilliant. It's beautiful. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Love it. Love it. Love it. Mm-hmm. Can't get enough of it. I think I still have the the. Uh, the bootleg VHS uh, of this nice. that I saw back in college. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> uh, so there was that. And then I did a watch of The Hunt from 2020. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but yeah, uh, I did a, a watch of this thing. Um, and it's uh, it's actually pretty good. Uh, is this the, uh, uh, is this the um, oh, what's her name, Gilpin? Film? Yeah, Betty yes. Gilpin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, she does. She actually does really uh, a really good job. It's it's funny because you know I mean obviously people um people are going to put their politics on this thing because it begs you to put your politics on it. Nice. Um, and I think that uh, I mean that's there, and it kind of the thing is that I think if you're on one side and you're saying that, you know, you're laughing at the other side, it's kind of funny because I think that this movie to a large extent pokes both sides, uh, pretty hard. So I think it's kind of equal opportunity in that sense. Um, I mean, is it deep? new? it is broad as broad can be. Um, and it, uh, but it works, uh, cause it moves along, you know, really, really fast. Uh, and it just keeps it, you know, it keeps it on the level of uh, caricature, so you you know you're never going to get too deep, and the violence is really uh, a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean the thing just uh, just flies along, and the Betty Gilpin character is is interesting because um, she's as kind of fucked up as everybody else is, uh, but she also just has this great you know sort of uh, almost Terminator esque sort of uh, go along um, drive uh, that she just uh, goes with throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, which is fun because you know she just she does not give a shit why this is happening. She just like wants to get to the end point. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I uh, I had fun with it. Uh, would I want to see more of these movies? Nah, I don't know. I think uh, 
one, you've pretty much said what you needed to say. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, if they could keep it at this level, I would be willing to, to watch more of them. I kind of doubt they would, though. I kind of think it would become carbon copies and then caricatures of caricatures of caricatures. Um, and then it would just kind of be dull and lifeless. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I dug this thing. I liked it uh, more than I thought that I would. So I'm always happy when that happens. Um Went from that to uh, One Cut of the Dead from 2017. And this is directed by Shinichiro Ueda. And it is obviously Japanese. And it's uh, it's interesting because uh, I went into this thing absolutely cold. Uh, I knew nothing about it other than people, you know, seem to lose their minds over how great it is. I would not go that far. Um I do think it's it's you know inventive. Uh, certainly, it it definitely uh, it does what it says. I mean, the first I think thirty or forty minutes is all one cut, uh, and it's you know a zombie movie. The problem is that it's kind of a not great zombie movie, um, and there's a lot of yelling, uh, and it, it but it all makes sense by the end. Uh, why there are these. Um, uh, uh, what the drawbacks uh, is the best word I can think of off the top of my head right now uh, to that first uh, that first thirty or forty minutes, and I think that the movie. Uh, well, I don't want to say too too much about it because I don't want to ruin it for anybody else. Because I do think you should go into it cold. Uh, I think it works a lot better that way. Uh, but uh, you know, a lot of stuff gets explained. Um, actually, everything does, and it it does undercut. I think to a large degree. Um, what you might think it is, uh, it certainly does that. It also, I think there's some emotional, uh, beats that it tries for that it doesn't quite earn. So it doesn't quite get up to that level. Uh, but you know, at the same time, it's, uh, it's enjoyable and it's pleasant, uh, to a large degree, uh, for, for certain aspects of it. Um, I really don't want to say anything more than that, but, uh, it was good. Um, it was actually pretty good, pretty darn good. But, but it's one of those things where this is this is definitely one of those things where you have to, you really have to go along with it. Um, it's uh, yeah, if you if you're uh, if you don't have the patience for it uh, to to see what it's actually trying to do, then you're not going to like it. Um, but if you just sit there and let it let it go along, I think you'll you'll get a bit out of it, and that's good. Uh, that's the kind of goes certainly for the effort. Um, and the uh, the talent and you know the accomplishment that they uh, that they did with it so good for them uh, there was that and then I finished it off with uh, first time watch of Jabberwocky uh, from Terry Gilliam oh, and really it's, kind, it's kind, yeah it's kind of funny because <clears throat> I'm a huge Gilliam fan and um yeah I was kind of surprised that it took me this long to watch Jabberwocky yeah uh, but now I kind of see why. Yeah, it's because a, it's really not that great. Nah, it's, a bit uh, of, it's a bit of a it, mess. It has moments that are wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, it, it looks great. Oh yeah, like all uh, Gilliam. The, yeah, the monster I, looks great. The the cinematography is great. Yeah. I can't think of any Gilliam stuff that doesn't look great. I mean, that's that's well, maybe I can't, but that's that's <laughs> every, that's pretty much every. I mean, he's just got one of the most unique visuals. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Abilities. He's of got any the, yeah, he's got this lo-fi trash aesthetic oh, uh, yeah. that I just I absolutely love. Yeah, when he was doing that stuff, that early Monty Python stuff, and that Jabberwocky and Time Bandits and that stuff, mm -hmm. it's uh, I mean, I think you know, steampunk was always around, but I mean, he was, 
I mean, he he was just unique. I mean, he was amazing. Indeed, uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, you can you can argue what he's what level he's at today, but uh, yeah. yeah, back then it was it, he really was on a different uh, a different level altogether. Yep, uh, and certainly, I mean, unique is uh, is the best word you can use to describe uh, what he puts out there. Yeah, but yeah, this movie the movie itself is is really blunt. Uh, it's really poorly paced. Um, I yeah. mean, Michael Palin is, is as pleasant as he ever was. And that kind of helps it along, yeah. uh, to a large degree. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this, this thing was really, I was kind of surprised by how, how very, very unsubtle, uh, it really is, yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. And you kind of are, are kind of scratching your head, especially since, I mean, he had, you know, because he'd worked, uh, you know, with the Pythons, before this, you would you would think that there might just be a little more cleverness to it, but it really isn't. Yeah. Um, but like I said, the the uh, the movie really kind of lives and dies on its visuals yeah. uh, to a large degree, and and they are fantastic. I'll give it that much. That's kind of him on um, his own, right? I mean, because yeah, that was his first. Yeah, that was his first. So his you, first. Feature, you see yeah. some of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail there, but you also see none of. Well, I guess you should. Yeah, you see some of Monty Python, but you also see none of Monty Python. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I tell you, one of no, the visuals, the, one of the things, it's most, it's the goofiest visual, but it's one of the things I remember the most from that movie. And I haven't watched. I've only seen the movie once, and I watched it ages ago on VHS. Uh, I've never revisited it because I remember it being slightly dull, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, just not overly interested in revisiting it. Maybe at some point I will, but. I remember there's a scene where there there's a house on a lake on a pond yep. and somebody's taking the shit out the window, which seems yep. to make sense. <laughs> and their ass is hanging out the window. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think to myself, well, in Terry Gilliam's world, this makes sense. I think. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, he liked, he liked his, his middle ages were absolutely vulgar and uh, grimy. Yeah. And he loves to play that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you gotta, you gotta, you know, give him credit for this. I mean, it looks like the Middle Ages. It looks like it was actually what it was actually like yeah. to live back then, when yeah. you know you were either an absolute peasant or you were, you know, a royal. Yeah. And there really was no in between. Yeah, it looks dreadful. Like I would not, you know, the Dark Ages from Terry Gilliam and Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is something else he's involved in, right? I would not yep. want to be a part of any of that. <laughs> No, it looks no, damp. No, no. It looks uh, muddy. Ugh, it just uh, yeah, it looks. It's just it's just yeah, it's disease riddled. Yeah. Oh God! But he does take a nice poke at uh, at teeth in this one. Oh yeah, I got a kick out of. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he does. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was. Uh, and the, the Jabberwocky itself is a fantastic uh, creation. It really it works really well yeah, on screen. Yeah, it does. Uh, which I was kind of surprised by because it's a full scale. Uh, monster suit um, and it was a lot of fun watching that so uh, so yeah do I need to see it again I kind of been thinking no but uh, you know I got it in there so yeah yeah that's what I said I mean now yeah, we've both seen it the same amount of times and uh, <laughs> I don't know if no. uh, yeah I don't know if uh, yeah I don't know if I'd ever pick that to talk about on the show or anything I mean I think it's cert- it's one of those movies where I think it's certainly worth a look but mm-hmm uh, yeah. Well, I think I think what it, you know, and and this is one of those things where you know, even though I was a huge Python fan um, in my youth and still am today, um, I never wanted to watch this thing because the, the the honestly the VHS boxes always look like shit. 
Mm-hmm. It was just like a, a photo of Michael Palin, and I would just be like, "Huh?" Yes. And it just yeah, it had no appeal. I remember to me, that. I remember you know, being that. a monster kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. I remember that now. You're right. Oh, yeah. The VHS when I rented it, I remember vividly. The only reason why I picked it up is because of the, and this is before, you know, I may have had the Leonard Malton book of movies or something, but uh, this is before I had a lot of access to movie history or movie knowledge. Um, so I just saw Michael Palin on the front and thought, well, that's a weird title and looked at the back, saw Terry Gilliam's name and thought, okay, I'll rent it. Yeah. It was, I just remember being disappointed. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it, it is, it is a bit disappointing, but it's also a first effort for a first effort. I mean, yeah, it's very, I should say first solo effort. It's a very memorable disappointment. And yeah, that, it that, is. that it sounds is. like a backhanded compliment and maybe in some ways it is, but it's. Um, yeah, it's it's a curiosity Listen, piece. The, the odds on you or I putting out something on this level, uh, our first time out is unlikely. Let's say yes, yes. Well, you certainly see the Gilliam yet to come, right? I mean, yes. you certainly yeah, yeah. see that in that movie. I mean, if, if anything, you see everything that he's going to go into over the next decade, right there yep. in that one movie. So, well, I think right after this, he did Time Bandits, right? I believe so. It, was, yes. it went from this to Time Bandits. Yeah, he so. used to work quickly uh now of course he he you know he he would <laughs> yeah i'm just filling some uh, of a space in the intro here uh but uh because i don't really have anything to talk about in well, the that's intro. okay because i have like nothing else to yeah. talk about anyway. but he uh you know notoriously he became very difficult to work with in hollywood so well yeah there's that and there's that you know he kept getting he kept having uh his budgets kept inflating yeah. uh and he wasn't bringing in box office yeah he uh, was, so he, people were you know you you got kind of radioactive as far as people wanting to invest yep. so you mean you would kind of have to be the kind of person like a like a george harrison who was just like well why'd you invest in this movie well, because i want to watch the movie yeah um yeah he had to have so, friends yeah. involved and i think it's part of the reason why he got some of his movies made because after brazil and munchausen he was pretty much oh man he was pretty much poison in hollywood like he couldn't get anything made for a while yeah 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 and both of those movies are very interesting. I, I have mixed emotions about Brazil, but uh, visually it's amazing. And then uh, Munchausen, uh, I like Munchausen more. I think it's much more entertaining, but it's also problematic. Yeah, well, it's a lot. It's messier than Brazil mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that uh, for me, I, I think that his a, a his most focused and b my favorite of his movies is Fisher King. Uh, yeah. Always was, always will be. Um, I got a real soft spot for that movie. Yeah. Um, I'm willing to forgive a lot of its flaws. Um, I'm probably a time bandits guy, but I do like, yeah, uh, I can see that too. I can see that one too. Yeah. I do like Fisher King a lot though. Well, I think, yeah, it's it's a much more traditional, uh, sort of movie in a lot of ways. Cause you know, you notice and you especially, oh, I especially noticed, uh, after watching this one, um, although I'm, I'm sure it's been in my head for a long time is that you know he loves to uh undercut uh the endings he doesn't uh, he doesn't give you the the expectation that you got mm-hmm. in your head uh he loves to just fucking kick the knees out from right under you uh <laughs> and that was certainly the case with this where you know you're watching it and you're just like why does he want to be miserable uh and then he just he winds up getting a different sort of misery um yeah, yeah. so yeah, i was looking yeah, at this but, uh, jabberwocky time bandits brazil Yep. Munchausen, Fisher King, yep. Twelve Monkeys, which you know I I like Twelve Monkeys. A I lot like too. I like Twelve Monkeys. I mean, I do. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I like. But I like that. One. Yeah, that was it's okay. not something I'd rewatch. But really, that later cycle. And stuff then what? Is, zero Zero Theorem. Well, no. There's uh, the Brothers Grimm. 
There's, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, there's Tideland, which uh, I didn't care for that. Yeah, it gave him a little bit of a controversy because I think there's some yeah. awkward moments in that, and uh, yeah. Yeah. then the Imaginarium, Doctor Parnassus, which I, ne- I never, I haven't seen anything. That was okay. Yeah, I haven't seen anything past Tideland. Me personally, that was okay. Zero Theorem was interesting idea. Uh, Don Quixote was kind of a letdown for me. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I would think for me, yeah, once he hits twelve monkeys, I kind of then I really really kind of tune out because I don't think he uh, right. he's not done anything that that satisfied me at least. I'm not saying that you know they're bad per se. Uh, they're still certainly very very Gilliam movies. Um, yeah, eighty years but, old, Terry. Yeah. Eighty years old this year. How about it? Yeah, he just uh, actually he just turns eighty today. Does he really? Yeah, today's his birthday. <laughs> How about that? What are the odds of that? <laughs> uh, that was completely out of the blue. Happy birthday, Mr. Gilliam. Yeah, there you, you go. You completely planned that, didn't you? I completely planned this. <laughs> but I, 80 years uh, younger today. Wow. I guess he's still working. I don't know. I mean, uh, I didn't see Quixote. Uh, I love the documentary on Quixote. It's oh, one yeah. of my favorites. I mean, it's amazing. But uh, yep. I didn't see the Quixote. I tell you, a documentary that he's in that's uh, totally underrated is the one on the Twelve Monkeys disc. That one. Oh, the Hamster Factory. Or yeah, whatever? yeah, that one is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see him going through the whole process, the marketing, all that stuff, and how involved he is in everything. And uh, yep. you realize that you know there's not a lot of directors like that anymore. But he was kind of close to Kubrickian in that way, where Kubrick would get involved in his marketing and everything. So. Yeah. 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 All right, is that all you got? Uh, yeah, man. I don't have a whole lot. Unfortunately, other than yeah. my my recent uh, just, uh, I go on these binges like almost daily of watching rewatching New Girl again. So nice, nice. <laughs> Whatever. I've been watching Star Trek Discovery, the third season. I'm still, you know, I'm a Trekkie. Uh, there you go. Yeah, not not a diehard one, but you know, definitely a Trekkie and love the uh, Star Trek. And so I've been watching that, and that's been good. And I can't think of any other television I've been watching. I was watching the Nick Frost show, but I haven't gotten back to that. This is really difficult yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah, I've been dipping into that a bit. Yeah, it's just really difficult for me to find time to really kind of focus on one thing. I, I, yeah. I, I both adore these times we live in with all this content and also abhor mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this, uh, well, the time that, we live you know, in. I know that we've, and we've talked about this a, a bit. Is that you know? Uh, it seems like the uh, the people who want to actually uh, or are being allowed the uh, the freedom to actually tell interesting stories are are doing it in in uh, in television format now, and I both am okay with that on the one hand, but on the other hand, it really leads to my dislike of things like, uh, and this is kind of the comic book moment for me for this week, is the uh, the whole. Um, rise of uh, decompressed storytelling mm, where yes. when you and I were, when you and I were kids, you know, for 60 cents or whatever, or mm-hmm. a quarter, uh, let's say, uh, yeah. when we started, uh, we oh, would get a complete story. I, I think it in was 24 pages. Yeah. I think it was 60 cents when I really started. Well, when I started actually collecting, collecting, it was yeah. 60. Yeah. When, when, I, I, was co- actually, when yeah. I first started buying, it was like 25, Yeah, yeah, yeah. 25, 35. Yeah. 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 Um, but I mean, if you think about that, you know, we they used to get an entire story in twenty four pages, yeah. and I mean an entire story. Yeah. Um, and now 
I mean, you're lucky if you get, you know, uh, a minute's worth of a story <laughs> for five fucking dollars. Yeah. A cent. And uh, that, a and a that, scene. Yeah. You get a scene for a cent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no, and, and I know that, what you that mean. That kind of irritates me because it, all, it's doing, all it's doing is dragging out stuff. And they're like, oh, well, we're developing this. Just, uh, you're not really. A lot of times you're really, really not. No. You can, uh, you you're can just tell. writing for the trade. So yeah. you can do this, you know. You can tell when people are developing something. And yeah. when they're not, you can tell when it's totally filler. And so I agree with you. I agree with you on the TV front. I mean, there are a lot of our favorite filmmakers and, and storytellers to, uh, working in TV, and sometimes it's a it's a home run, but a lot of times it's a lot of filler. It really and, is. And you can see that there could have been a film there, but you can also see that the studio wouldn't have rolled the dice on that being a film. Right. Which right. is weird. So kind of, yeah. Which is weird because it costs just as much to make it into a show, but I guess the advertising dollars or the content dollars are higher. So I guess they well, allow yeah, them to do almost, that. There's a guaranteed make back yeah. of, uh, of, yeah. So it's just a weird time, right? I mean, you know, we could get into this and talk about it for hours, I'm sure, but sure. it's just sure. a weird time. And I totally see, you know, the filmmakers that we also love that are still working, who are probably getting ready to retire or move on. So, IE like a Tarantino who supposedly is going to make one more movie and that's it. I can totally see him, you know, he's talked about doing miniseries and stuff. I could totally see him doing that for, HBO Max or Netflix or whatever, and uh, it'd be in, you know, some of the complaints about Tarantino's later films anyway, too much Tarantino, uh, yeah. I guarantee you we will probably see a, doc, uh, a, a miniseries and it'll be way too much Tarantino. Well, you know, you do know that he's he's writing uh, an adaptation of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and he's doing some other book. He's oh, got yeah, like a two book right. deal, I think, going on. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think, is uh, going to be and, a and, miniseries. And one, of them's, right? one of them's kind of a, a nonfiction, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I know he's got a novel coming out. I know he's he's wrote a book, a fiction book. Yeah, I and believe. I'm thinking to myself, so is that going to be like you know twelve thousand pages of? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, he is uh, he is a big fan of novels, and uh, you know, I think that's where a lot of his teaching, a lot of his learning comes from, is reading. So. I'd be curious to read it, but uh, also worried oh, that it's I'm gonna, not edited. I'm going to buy it. Yeah. Out of 10, yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious, but I, I think that's where he's going to go, and I think it's what he's going to do. And Yeah, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood miniseries thing, or the series thing, that's interesting. That could be... I don't know I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know how I feel about it yet. I don't know. I'd have to see something. You know, I just don't know how I feel about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm curious about it myself. I'm going to, you know, I'll I'll... Give it the once over. I'll let it. Uh, I'll let it do what it's going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it better. Uh, you know, his past couple efforts have not exactly blown my socks off. Let's just say. Yes. Uh, yeah. So he's got a, a little bit of uh, of stuff to make up in, in my, for me at least. Uh, but uh, you know, is what, what is it is. But uh, oh, that reminds me that I did watch uh, actually another show, and it was the, the I've uh, watched all of uh, the Queen's Gambit. Oh yes. And uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. But, you yeah. know, and, and a lot of that is uh, is helped by uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who I absolutely adore. Yeah, yeah she's uh, very good. And she really does – she does a nice job. Um, I think that the show probably – I mean, it's very – you could kind of spot the beats mm. uh, that you're going to get in the show. Um, but I also think that, you know, for something that's about – or supposedly about um, uh, addiction – uh, in a in a certain way, uh, that it doesn't really get uh, doesn't really get to the meat of it, and it kind of almost uh, blows it off by the end. 
Um, and I also think that it's, you know, it maybe thinks that it's a little bit deeper, uh, than it actually is. Um, but for, you know, for just, uh, something to, to watch, uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It looks nice. Um, it does a pretty good job of, uh, capturing the, uh, or some of the sixties anyway, uh, in a certain stylized sense. And like I said, Anya Taylor-Joy really does a, a, you know, a pretty darn good job, um, with what uh, with what she's given so uh and you know yeah i mean like i said i'm kind of alluding to uh, a lot of these long form things these days i'll just kind of you know if i'm not in by the first or second episode i'm like you know what fuck this because life is too short uh, yeah, which is kind of why right? i like movies and that's yeah. kind of what we're what i'm trying to, to get at uh yeah. with this whole conversation in the first place yeah that's the thing i mean it's kind of like you know comics used to be you know i'd read i'd buy like okay it's like i'm gonna go to the store and i'd I'd be like, okay, I'm going to try an issue of, I don't know, Ghost Rider. I, I haven't read Ghost Rider in a while. I'm going to try an issue of Ghost Rider. I read an issue, yep. and if it doesn't hook me, I'm like, okay, yep. I'm not going to try another issue of Ghost Rider. I'm, yeah, I'm but done. 9 out of 10, you weren't you were not jumping in in the middle no. of, a, of a story. So you could actually, you know, you could get an idea of the characters because, yeah, in a certain way, it was this kind of trapped in amber sort of writing. Uh, and especially when Jim Shooter was running Marvel and stuff like that, because he was like, you know, they used to say every ish, every issue of every book is uh, somebody's first, yeah. which is an interesting way to look at it because that's kind of true. It's kind of true, right? Yeah. No. Um, yeah, yeah. So you know, if if you if they have no background and they gotta you know go back and and make up for you know however many years of of backstory and history and all this other shit, you know, how likely are they going to want to be to to keep doing it? Yeah. Um. So you know, there is there is a certain you you do have to have a certain uh, economic sensibility to what you're doing. It's not just simply, uh, you know, writing for yourself. If you're writing for, you know, if you're writing for a company with, with, with established characters, obviously, I mean, if you're doing your own thing, then it's your own thing. You can do yep. whatever the fuck you want. Uh, but you're also, you know, it's you rolling the dice. So I, you're taking I, the risks. I can say this week, uh, you know, to, get, to go back into the comic book moment, I can say two things that I have been revisiting over the past week, and that has been actually Ghost Rider from ninety from nineteen ninety. That mm-hmm. that uh, Mark with the Mark Texera, Mark Texera, and uh, I can't remember the writer's name, Mackie, maybe. Uh, no, I maybe not. Maybe not Mackie. No, uh, maybe Sal- um, Saltieras. Maybe I can't remember the name. No. Anyway, uh, revisited that because that was a big one. Right, it was right when I was getting out of high school. That was a big one. Uh, that first twelve or fifteen issues, I really enjoyed quite yeah, a bit, yeah, yeah. and uh, it was neat and interesting. And then also on the DC side of that, uh, the Spectre with uh, Mandrake and uh, oh, I can't remember the writer off the top of my head. But anyway, is that the Matt Demetrius on that one? No, it wasn't Demetrius. It was somebody else, and I'm ashamed that I can't remember it. But I always thought Tom Mandrake—I think it's his name—the artist. Yeah. I always thought he's underrated. Man, that guy's really talented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. Uh, he actually did a Captain Kronos uh, Vampire Hunter series like, yeah. like a year or two ago. Yeah, that guy's. He's he's really. I mean, I really love the visuals of that uh, '90s uh, Spectre comic. It's very, yeah. very Sandman. Very, uh, you know, very much. Well, he had, yeah, he had that sort of scratchy yeah. uh, Plu- style to him. Plugish, almost kind of. Gene Colan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's that too. Yes, a little Bernie Wrightson in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a little of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, there's that. So, there you go. So I always try to get the comic <laughs> books in. Try to get the comic books in. Yeah, and I I took a dive on that omnibus. So there you go. There you go. There we go. Son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, money I haven't got to blow it up. Uh, <laughs> they find Christ. a way. They find a way. 
That's funny you mentioned that omnibus because I just read the first issue of the new, I guess it's a new DC series of Legion of Superheroes. I just read the first issue of that uh, last week. Is that week. the Bendis thing? Yeah, it's the Bendis one. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty good. I'll probably was check it? it out for a little while, yeah. I'll check it out for a little while. I come and go on Legion quite a bit. Well, I'm I, I for me at this point, I really am just off of the Bendis train. Yeah, I understand. Totally get it. Although I do love Doll H for Hero. I don't know if that was him. I think it was him. But anyway. Mm, the recent one? Yeah. Yeah, believe it or that not. That I don't know. That, believe it or not, that's really good. Or it was really good. I haven't read it in a while, so maybe it's not any good anymore. Who knows? Obviously, I got off of it, so it got bad at some point. <laughs> anyway, that's enough. Well, we're going to take a short break. <laughs> we're going to come back and discuss uh, Get Crazy from 83. We'll be back right after this. Dusty McGowan's latest book, The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, is available now in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Mental illness, isolation, and death? Now, that's my idea of a good time. Does the devil himself spend his off hours in dive bars? Where do Egyptian mummies go when they just can't seem to pass away? These and many other important questions are answered in this collection of stories that blend magic, realism, and dark comedy. The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, may be found on Amazon, Apple Books, Audible, and all fine booksellers. Troy for you this morning you know I think for some of the modern generation they might know that as like a song for a fast food commercial <laughs> uh yeah or like a, a detergent <laughs> or even a car or something <laughs> yeah. yeah it yeah. seems like that's what it uh eventually turned into sadly but that's a it's a great song you know it's uh you know not obviously the, always the genres I pop into is old school kind of soul music and stuff but because uh, I think all of us have our our Piccadillos when it comes to music, but absolutely, I love all music, and uh, that's a that song's got a great beat and a great sound to it, and it's got a very memorable moment in this movie, should say. Um, all right, man, get crazy from nineteen eighty three, directed by one Alan Arkish, one of my favorite people in the movies. He's right up there with Joe Dante, and uh, oddly or not oddly, uh, wonderfully, they have worked together over the years and been friends over the years. And I love to hear them talk about each other. Hey, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yo, Joe would always say, that's my Alan Arkush uh, impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lord. Anyway. Um, <laughs> plot synopsis. Mega promoter Colin Beverly plans to sabotage the New Year's 1983 concert of small-time operator Max Wolf. Uh, we'll leave it at that. So essentially, this is, in a lot of ways, uh, at least for me, it is a full film version of the Ramones concert scene in Rock and Roll High School. 
Uh, yeah, 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 in a lot uh, of ways, yeah. And I think Arkish worked at the, uh, I can't remember what uh, place it was, but it was some... The Fillmore. The Fillmore, yeah. I think he worked there, and he's a huge music buff. Uh, not just a big film buff, but he's a huge music buff. If you ever see his trailers from hell or any interviews with him, you know, he usually does it, I think, in his study or his office, or maybe it's his living room, I don't know, but he has a ton of vinyl records behind him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, he's always been a big music fan. And I think this was a love letter for him uh, to make this movie. And uh, I don't I don't think it, if I recall, I don't think it performed really well, the movie. Um, you know, Arkish has went on to work a lot. I mean, he still works today. He works a lot in TV now. Mm-hmm. He's become one of the most prominent television directors there is. Um, but he had a little run. You know, he did, uh, he obviously did Hollywood uh, Boulevard with Joe Dante. Did Desport, Rock and Roll High School, yep, yep. Heart Beeps, which is a quirky, odd movie, uh, Get Crazy, and then pretty much quit making movies. Except, well, he came back for Caddyshack 2, which is always a weird one in his filmography to me. <laughs> and I think, well, I'm, I'm going to say this about that. I think the less said about Caddyshack 2 is probably the better. <laughs> does have Jackie Mason in it, though. <laughs> and it's also got that bizarro Dan Aykroyd uh, yes, performance. It has some of those strangest things, and it's 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 one of those movies where I don't even know why it's considered a sequel <laughs> because it's so yeah. weird. Uh, but it does have a great Kenny Loggins song uh, there, so there you go, Captain. Very interesting. There's that, I guess. Anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. Moving on. Um, <laughs> But yeah, he ended up working in TV quite a bit. He, like I say, he jumped into Caddyshack too. But after that, I don't think he's done a film since. He's done nothing but television shows since then, and uh, that's both awesome, but also you know kind of sad because I think Alan Arkish is a pretty good filmmaker. Honestly, I think he is. Yeah, no, I like his uh, I like his uh, his sensibilities. I like yep. that he's uh, a bit goofy, uh, but he's also you know kind of uh, he's got a lot of heart. Yeah. But luckily and thankfully, he's uh, had a nice long career in Hollywood, which is mm-hmm. saying something because, you know, that's a place that'll chew you up and spit you out. Mm-hmm. He did direct the Bette Midler, Mick Jagger, Beast of Burden video. So there is that, too. There you go. And anybody who's listened to the show over the years knows I have a weakness for Bette Midler. <laughs> he was uh, taught, took a course uh, taught by Martin Scorsese. So there you go. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I guess I'll lead on this one, uh, if you don't mind, or if you don't care. Yeah, sure. Uh, Try to always lead on the one I don't pick and vice versa. So uh, that's the way the show's always been anyway. But uh, sometimes I feel like I don't have stuff to say. So sometimes I will kick it over to somebody else uh, and uh, let them do the heavy lifting. But so this one's got a really fun cast. You got Malcolm McDowell in here uh, playing Reggie Wanker, which the the joke is in the name and and in the performance. Uh, even at some point, literally, in the performance. Uh, Alan Garfield, who reminds me of Jackie Mason, oddly. Um, for some reason, he always has. Uh, Daniel Stern. Alan Garfield? Yeah, I don't know. The, the, it, whenever he gets really excited or gets upset and he does the yelling thing, it kind of reminds me of Mason a little bit. I don't know why. I could kind of see that. And by the way, he's credited here as Alan Gorowitz. Yeah, or Alan Gorowitz. That's right. And Alan Garfield, you guys have seen him in... You don't sound you like you know who he is. Trust yes. me. Yeah, you know it's one of those names where you're like, oh, okay, I don't, I'll have to look that up. But when you see it, you're like, oh yeah, that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel Stern, who's basically an avatar for Alan Arkish in this film. Yep, um, absolutely. Not only, I mean, 
if they were to make a documentary on Alan Arkish, or you know, a fiction documentary, they could do worse than casting Daniel Stern. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they look they look very similar as well as being yeah the yeah. character. They seem to be very similar in a lot of ways. Now, of course, mm-hmm. they they could be totally different personally, but I think of Daniel Stern when I see Daniel Stern. A lot of times, I think of Alan Arkish and vice versa. Uh, Gail Edwards, uh, Miles Chapin is by Sammy Fox. You probably don't know him by name either, but if you see him, you know him. Uh, Ed Begley Jr., Stacey Nelkin, who I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> Again. Uh, Bill Henderson, another character actor playing King Blues here. And you get yep. numerous musicians throughout the movie leaving John Dinsmore, uh, doing a totally different type of drummer role than his, uh, Doors stuff. Um, you know. All kinds of people, man. Franklin Ajay, Fabian's in here. Yep. yep. Uh, who played Captain Cloud? Was that one of? Was that Flo or Eddie? Was uh, that Kalen? Yeah. Uh, his last name was, I believe, yeah, Jake Kalen. Uh, something Kalen. Yeah. Howard Kalen. Yeah, Howard Kalen. Yeah, that's right. Was he? Yeah, was he? No, he's not the guy, is he? He's not the he's guy. Captain that, Cloud. Yeah, but I know he's that. But he's, yeah, he's the Turtles guy. He's Eddie. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. A Flo and Eddie, he's the he's the uh he's the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Famous uh for you know Happy Together and uh, yep. uh stuff he did with uh, the Mothers of Invention, I believe, the uh the Frank Zappa stuff and of course the Flo and Eddie stuff. So very odd career. Very drug induced <laughs> career. <laughs> uh uh-huh. well it certainly fits in here, yeah. Yeah. And you get Bob Picardo in here, Warnov and Bartell show up. Dick Miller's Dan in here Frischman. for a brief moment, yeah. So all kinds of people uh that you know and, and a lot of them are friends with Arkish. So mm-hmm. there's that. Um as far as film was, a lot of those a lot of the names in the film, uh I don't know if they've done other stuff really much. The the cinematography is Thomas Del Ruth and the editing Kent Beta, I believe, is somebody a name I know of Michael Jablo, I think. <laughs> what a strange last name, Jablo. But uh, not really a whole lot there. But this is really uh, Arkish's love letter and maybe his most personal film. And maybe also that's why it's his last film until Caddyshack 2. Because, again, uh, sometimes when filmmakers make their personal films, they get lucky in their hits. I don't believe Get Crazy was a hit. I'm pretty sure it was not. Yeah. I think by 83, a lot of this rock and roll sensibility was dying down. I mean, you're talking about the new wave at this point, uh, you yeah. know? Well, and, uh, I mean, it, according to IMDb, it was made for $5.5 million. It grossed $1.6. That is a dud. That would be considered a flop. Yes. Or even a bomb. Yes. Speaking of the movie plot. Yeah, it made only one-fifth of its uh, you know, budget back. Yeah. So obviously, yes. uh, wrong movie at the wrong time. That's, yeah. Well, uh, or just wasn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's any variety of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's unfortunate that that happened. But I mean, the movie. If you love '80s wacky movies, if you like Rock and Roll High School, yes, or something like that, then if you haven't seen Get Crazy, then you're probably missing out. I mean, it's it's to me, this and Rock and Roll High School are almost hand in hand. They absolutely are. I hundred percent agree with that. I mean, they got you know the only difference is one is Ramon centric, right? And this one, I mean, because they both have the same kind of storyline. There's love mm-hmm. there and a relationship building and all that kind of good stuff. But they uh, the other one is just very Ramon centric, and the other one isn't. So 
Um, even though there is a Ramon song in here, they found he finds a way to work one in. Um, some of it feels um, disconnected in a weird way, but I think the chaos of rock and roll in the seventies and what Arkish probably witnessed when he worked uh, behind the scenes as a stage manager or as a door guy or whatever he did at the Fillmore. Fillmore East, Fillmore, uh, Fillmore West, West. Fillmore. I yeah, believe. I don't know. I think a lot of that gets on camera here. A lot of that get a lot of that craziness gets on camera here because you know you've if you've ever read stories about bands behind the scenes. I mean, some of the kookiest and craziest and most eccentric stuff bands do tends to be handled by a stage manager. Uh, there's the infamous uh, No Brown M and M's. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. For Van Halen. Um, you know, there's people who request all kinds of weird shit and, uh, it's just, you know, sometimes it's a power grab. Sometimes it's just the eccentric nature of musicians. I mean, uh, there's many a story of artists who have very strange <laughs> proclivities to say the least, yeah. uh, you know, so stage managers have done everything from get girls for guys, uh, or get men for women. Uh, shouldn't always not say it's not always male centric. I think the Go Go's stage manager would uh, get boys for them, men. Yep. yep. Maybe maybe boys. It was yeah. a different time back then. Uh, scary, but true. Um, but you know, all that stuff kind of bleeds through in the movie. So the movie has a genuine spirit of anarchy, but at the same time, it has a genuine spirit of nostalgia and love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That I got. I got to say, watching the movie again, it just puts a smile on my face. Like it's just. A yes. happy movie. Yes. It's so happy to be around music, to be celebrating music. Uh, true, there's a lot of drug use in the movie. Um, take that how you want to take it. I don't take it as a bad thing necessarily. Uh, not not saying that I want my kids to you know, fire one up or anything. But, you know, I mean, it, it was the times. Uh, you know, people were smoking a lot of pot, doing cocaine, uh, music and well, they drugs. Got, yeah, they hit all of them in this. There's yeah. coke, acid. There's. I don't think there's any heroin though. Oh, there's not heroin. No, no that, that's. Know. I think things start to get dark when heroin gets involved for some reason. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, there's no. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but, but getting to that, there. I mean, there's no real pretense that these people are all straight and narrow, right? You know, right. they they right. desperately want and or need drugs. Right. Uh, so that's where the electric Larry character comes in. Which yes. Is, he's he's really odd uh, in the movie. Yeah. Well, he's like a drug induced avatar of some sort yeah he's this otherworldly figure yeah he, uh but it's a great visual though he's got it the, is the, 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 the he's got the glowing eyes and the hat band that's like a mirrored disco ball yeah it's like a almost like a darth vader-ish kind of cybernetic Kinda, yeah, yeah yeah well there's that's actually the second uh allusion to uh star wars in the movie then yeah 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 that's right because the the beginning the very first shot uh, yes the very first shot is uh, kind of a riff on uh, Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, and it's actually I kind of found that interesting because, um, yeah, it's obviously lampooning Star Wars, but the, he actually gets the shot angle right because every Star Wars movie, the the original uh, three, started with like a shot of a large spaceship flying overhead from uh, from off screen. Yeah, 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 and you know I think this is one of the few movies to me that really kind of captures the spirit of rock and roll and youth and that energy that kind of yeah. comes through in that, um, especially in the fiction realm. I think rock and roll high school and this one both kind of nail that, that kind mm-hmm. of, un, that kind of unadulterated fandom that kids go through with music for a little while. 
I mean, I know I did. I know, uh, you know, we might be the last generation that actually stood outside of a ticket line to get tickets for a concert. Uh, I don't know if you ever did that, but I certainly did uh, to get good seats uh, for shows. Sometimes, you know, you would actually have to stand in line or camp out or something like that. I've never done that. I've stood in line to get in the places, but I've never stood in line to get tickets. I never camped out. Uh, I did get in line like, you know, I think eight hours early one time. Pretty crazy. But, you know, I guess you could call that camping out, though, if you really wanted to. I didn't sleep, uh, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, Next best thing, anyway. Yeah. Never done it for a movie, but certainly have done it for a concert before. And, um, you know, again, it's just the, that unadulterated love you have, that this shameless love you have for your favorite act or one of your favorite acts or or whatever is... It's it's very it's it's very much a story of passion for you in your youth if you if you love music that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could put you could put that in in the sense of anything. You could put that in the stand in line for Stan Lee, or you could put that in the stand in line for you know Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, or whatever. You know, you, it, there's just certain things in pop culture people have a natural love for, and music was Arkish's thing, and you really get the sense of that here. You get the sense of it being a big party, everybody get together play some music, you know, have a good time. In this case, i.e. do some drugs and and party and stuff. Now, the movie is surprisingly decadent in a lot of ways, Uh, not just with the drug use, but there's a lot of nudity in the movie, uh, which might be surprising to some folks because it it doesn't have that feel of a very grown-up adult-type film at first. It kind of seems like a really silly, kind of wonky like Rock and Roll High School, I believe, is a PG movie, right? Because it's just kind of... I don't know if there's any nudity in Rock and Roll High School. There might be. I'm pretty sure there's not, I'm going to say. Yeah. I mean, there's some sexual innuendo, but I don't believe there's yeah. any real nudity. But in this case, there's quite a bit of nudity in the film. And uh, it really kind of plays on, you know, sexual kind of decadence that and you know that are around bands, especially with the Reggie Wanker character. And uh, obviously... Some of that, too, might be commercial for the movie, right? Because, you know, we're in the 83 here. You're in the throes of the teenage sex comedy Mm -hmm. as well. And there's a scene in here where uh, a young man, he's trying to lose his virginity, and he loses it to some uh, Norwegian, the Norwegian girlfriend, I think, of uh, uh, Shantamina, of uh, Reggie Wanker's character. Yeah, well, that's that's the, uh, the perennial nerd uh dan frischman right yeah dan frischman that's he's, right he's desperate to to pop his cherry and he's kind of the heavy heavy sex angle in the movie yeah he is know? and obviously like a lot of these movies in the 80s the heavy nerd has the largest cock so yes exactly yeah which is uh, uh. yeah got news for you <laughs> got news for you it doesn't really work out that way classic <laughs> <laughs> he does i will say this though the freshman character he does get a lot of great bits uh as everybody everybody at the back door there pretty much menaces him or walks all over him. yeah and he was so he, gets, he gets thrown around a lot he, he was lot known uh mostly for uh head of the class yeah three years later just three years later how about it uh well, daniel stern did chud one year later yeah 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 uh, he's in uh, he's in the head of the class, and that becomes his main character, right? That that's what most people would know him for as Arvid Ingen yes. Yes. from uh, yes. head of the class. Um, and he would pop up in other stuff. Looks like he did a lot of Keenan and Kel episodes, and yeah, yeah, he does. He did a lot of uh, of uh, Nickelodeon stuff, but I think that's because of uh, his relationship with Dan Schneider, who was also on head of the class. Yeah, I think he's uh, I think he retired 
it looks like he hasn't done anything since 2010 so huh. he's either stepped away or done something he's, else uh, he's uh, living off of that head of the class money yeah yeah he was in Maston anonymous with that, that bob dylan film that larry charles directed how odd that he's in that hmm. i don't remember him in that he played uh what a weird name for the character. I don't I, I didn't see the film so I can't say Eddie Quicksand, which is sounds like a mob name. <laughs> anyway, you're right. He uh he basically would play the nerd character um uh, in a lot of things um in the early part of his career or all, well all the way up until head of the class went off the air. And maybe even after that. I don't really know if I've seen him in anything after that. But maybe. So but yeah, he's got the uh, he's he's a real man, as she says, and <laughs> you know, because this is the '80s when you know men are judged by the size of their penis, not by the exactly <laughs> anything else, you know. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, the uh, the movie is it it just has the right amount of anarchy and the right amount of chaos. I think I, I really like Daniel Stern's really good in this movie. He he's mm-hmm. he's um. Not the stern you kind of know. Now he's kind of come a. He's a great character actor. Should I should I should say that right up front? Um, I think he's underrated actually. I 100 percent agree as a character actor because he's kind of known to always kind of play because of his hair and kind of the way he looks and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, most people know him from Home Alone or Home Alone Two, um, or maybe they know him. Well, maybe they know him from Chud. But yeah, yeah. Uh, or several other things. I mean, he's he's been in a lot of stuff over the years. Maybe Leviathan. Maybe Leviathan. Yeah, and he usually plays the wise, cracking, kind of goofy, you know, slightly hip character. Mm-hmm. Um, but slightly nerdy at the same time. Kind of like he, kind of like in between. But he he gets a he gets a lot of work on TV and stuff, and he still works a lot nowadays. So I'm just looking through his uh, filmography to see if we see anything else here. That he would really be known for, but I think those are the things he would mostly be known for. Chud is definitely, you know, the year after. Yep. Oh, he's in Blue Thunder. I remember he's in that. Well, that was just before this. Him yeah. and uh, Malcolm McDowell were both in Blue Thunder. How about that? Oh, he's in Breaking Away. That's right. He was in Breaking Away. Yeah. That was yeah, his yeah. debut. So there you go. I forgot he was in that. I don't know how I forgot that, but he's definitely in that. Yeah. And then, you know, he's he's really, really good in the movie. And, and, and we should say, you know, Malcolm McDowell's good in the movie, too. Now, he's playing a uh, an opulent kind of, uh, I don't know, he's playing a stereotypical rock, rock and roller. Yep. A rock star. Uh, a little bit of uh, the Clockwork Orange character coming through in some ways here. Uh, certainly yep. with the outfit yep. Yep. and the cod piece. Uh, I wonder- Dude, those pants, those pants he's sporting, it looks like he's got some kind of an edema going on in this crotch area like there's some there's some unnatural swelling uh happening down there his you might want to have you might want to have that attended to now his singing isn't bad but his dancing and you is it undulating uh is that the word uh, I'm undulating undulating undulating, yeah. undulating not undulating undulating is uncomfortable to watch <laughs> it's, it's very well, awkward he's, he's yeah he's 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 eating up all of this you could tell he's having a blast doing it and by the way i need to correct uh, I don't know if I said this on air or not, but he does in fact do his vocals. Yeah. Um, I thought he did. I, I was wrong about that. And I was also wrong. I, it was not Fillmore West, it was Fillmore East. There we go. We'll get it right so, sooner or later. So we, we yeah, don't, you we know, come back around. Yeah. We, we figure it out. 
So, but there's a lot of similarities in this between that and right now. And I know I keep going back to Rock and Roll High School, but I mean, I think most people have seen Rock and Roll High School and they haven't seen this, but the little okay. sister character, yep, um, yep. you know, the protective Neil Allen to the Susie Allen, that's the, the Stacey Nelkin character, you know, she's finding her early adulthood, right? I mean, she's, she's, she loves Reggie, right? Wanker. And, you know, she's becoming sexually... Uh, not not active wouldn't be the word, but certainly, you know, aware of her sexuality. And, you know, that that's uncomfortable for Daniel Stern's character, although he's probably went through the same thing. Uh, yeah. But obviously there's this male-female quotient to that. The Gail Edwards character, or the Willie Loman character played by Gail Edwards, she's kind of fun. She kind of comes into the movie. Actually, I think when she comes into the movie, it's when you do hear the Just One Look song. Yes. Uh, Daniel Stern kind of it's he's kind of smitten with her right from the get go. Yep. And well, it's, uh, it's funny. It's funny every time that he sees her, he imagines some weird sexual fantasy with her. Yeah. But the you know what what I found interesting about that is that these moments are almost always followed by scenes where they kind of develop their relationship a little bit, so it never comes off as overly like um like skanky or totally like uh, puerile or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's got, it's got a little bit of, uh, I mean, there's something more going on than just, you know, getting your rocks off. Yes. That's more of the freshman character. Yeah. I always thought that the really, the real sexual relationship in this movie is between Daniel Stern and the, and the chimpanzee. The chimp. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. That is a big chimpanzee, by the way. Yes, it is. That is a big one. It's got a really red ass. It really does. And, uh, <laughs> it makes me think somebody was smacking it off camera. Uh, maybe Reggie Wanker. Is this, is this Actually, time, I would say leaving more. But. Is this the opportunity for me to mention again that I have once shook hands with a chimp? So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> As the things that have gone down in GGTMC history, it's not the movie talk. <laughs> it's the little strange things in our lives that have happened. So, yeah. Every time I see a chimp, I think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you go. But I mean, uh, because I always think of that, I always think there's no way I would allow that chimp to climb on me. There's no way. Uh-uh. Those things can crush things, and I mean crush them. <laughs> well, not to mention he probably his fangs would probably take oh, your face oh, right off. Oh my god, scary animal, man! I don't care what anybody oh, yeah. says. I understand. Yeah, they're they're real cute right up until you're up next to one. Yeah, they're real cute. Yeah, until you're with within the vicinity of one, and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, this there's something not right about this. <laughs> Yeah, fuck this. Yeah. Trust me. Your spider sense will be tingling. I promise you. <laughs> if you ever get near one, you'll know what's, what Peter Parker was going through. Oh, man. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, there's that. Um, and, and and I like that. I think it's a very innocent and sweet relationship. Yes. And, actually, yeah. the, that between that and the Max Wolf and the Neil Allen, the Alan Garfield-Daniel Stern kind of father-son relationship is very sweet. Too, and I think that's. I mean, to me, obviously, there's a. Well, there has to be a, a a story element to the film. So you got the nephew character who is trying to take over Maxwell's promoter career, and you got the competing promoter played by Ed Bagley Jr. Uh, in a jumpsuit. Uh, yeah, yeah. For yeah. those who have always wanted to see Ed Bagley Jr. in a jumpsuit, it's not highly recommended. He doesn't look great in one, but. Uh, so you got a, you know a bomb involved, and you got them trying to burn down or blow up the. Uh, the place that they're performing in and take over this uh, venue. Um, but in all of that, I, that's just secondary plot stuff to me to kind of move the story along. Really what this movie is all about is relationships and Arkish's relationship with music mm-hmm. and how that has probably got him through most of the things in his life. 
And the Lou Reed character is basically kind of an avatar for Bob Dylan, sort of, mm-hmm. but also sort of Lou Reed. Um, mm-hmm. And I say that because Auden, it, 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 the Auden is a character. He's this kind of mysterious, reclusive guy. I don't know if Reed's always ever been considered that. I know, you know, again, I can take or leave Lou Reed. I'm, uh, that might be a hot take. He's not for well, everybody, I think. You know, listen, yeah, yeah. I've never really kind of liked his deadpan style. I've, I've, I've always, I've appreciated his songwriting, but I've never really loved his voice and never really loved the kind of deadpan way he sings. It's just not really okay. for me. But I, I appreciate it and understand that you know songwriting wise, the guy's kind of a genius in a way, and that that has never really bothered me that much. But you know, I, I think he's kind of an avatar or kind of a. Uh, basically a take on Dylan. Uh, that's how I, I perceived him anyway. And obviously, Kalen in there is the Captain Cloud character is kind of a take on, you know, Woodstock and the, uh, you know, the, the, the LSD. Well, the dead. Yeah, yeah, and the dead and all that kind of stuff. And that, and that generation of hippies and people who loved music and drugs and stuff and that generation dying, you mm. know, because that generation's dead by, you know, the mid-70s, early 70s, really. And, um, uh, you know, you could get into the whole Charles Manson killed all that movement and everything else thing. Rock and roll hung on to it for a while, but it, it just never really, you know, everybody kind of, for lack of a better term, everybody kind of grew up and got jobs and everything from that generation and, and you know, became oddly, kind of became the characters we see in American Psycho. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And it's kind of weird to say that now, but that wasn't the intention picking it, but you know. You know, the 70s are kind of a me generation, but the 80s really are about, you know, greed and stuff. And a lot of those me generation guys from the 70s turned into those greedy guys in the 80s, right? So a lot of greed in the 70s and 80s, no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. A lot of greed like Coke. Yeah. Anyway, uh, to get back to the story. So, you know, it, it basically is a is an excuse to, to play some music in the film, too. And uh, the musical performances are good. Uh, the band Nada is in here. Uh, not, it's not a real band. I don't know if it's a real band or not. I don't think they are. I know that the lead singer of Nada was a, a casting director, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of like the female equivalent of Slipknot. <laughs> <laughs> what, in that there's like 50 of them and you're not, not sure what anybody's doing. Yes. Uh, but they, they carry around Piggy, who's uh, the Lee Ving character, who is going yeah. full Lee Ving here. Dude, he owns every scene that he's in. He does. I think he's fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's such a, it, it's so, it, it, yeah, it's completely leaving. Do you think leaving and Iggy Pop had a competition to see who could be shirtless on film more? Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Because between them two guys, there might be like three shirts owned. <laughs> <laughs> and I can promise you none of them had sleeves. No, 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 no. But it is, I thought about that because, you know, I just recently watched The Dead Don't Die last week, right? Yep. And Iggy Pop and plays a, a zombie. He's got a vest on in there. He's yeah. got a vest, but no shirt, of course, yep, nope. because he's Iggy. Yep. And, uh, and every time I see Lee Ving, typically he's got leather pants on, typically. Yep. And uh, no uh, shirt. So, And he's full tilt the whole movie. And uh, he's fun. You know, like I said, he, he does a great version of Hoochie Coochie Man in this, which is what mm-hmm. I was going to play. Uh, full disclosure, I was going to play before the break, but uh, audio quality, I couldn't find a really good version of that that wasn't live and muddled and you couldn't really understand anything. So. To sound like what do they buy? So that, there you go. That's pretty much it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to say. I mean, I think this movie. I it's a tough one for me to review because this one I, is a sentimental favorite. 
one of the reasons why I've never picked Rock and Roll High School on the show is because I absolutely love Rock and Roll High School. Yeah. It's one of my favorite films. It's not a great film, not by any stretch of the imagination, uh, if I was to review it critically. But it would be hard. And you're going to hear this with my review of this because it, it's really difficult for me not to be just in love with everything that's going on here. Yes, absolutely. And this era and everything about it and how much music meant to people and people would buy albums and they would get together and just sit around and smoke cigarettes and drink beers and just listen to music and just, you know, just become one with all that stuff. And that sounds kind of heady and a little hippie-ish itself. But I mean, that's the stuff I used to do as a kid, man. We, we, I'd save up my grass cutting money and, you know, we'd go buy, I don't know, Iron Maiden somewhere in time. And uh, that's just one I can think of off the top of my head. We'd, we'd ride our bikes up to the local record store. Uh, this was before I got a cassette player. So I'd buy albums still. And I know everybody buys albums now, but this is different. This is, this is not, I'm not buying albums because I want to buy albums. I'm, this is buying albums because I had to buy albums. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I would buy something like Iron Maiden somewhere in time. We'd take it home. Three or four of us would get together. And uh, I was probably a little young for cigarettes at this point. But we would sit down and we'd you know, put it on. And obviously the only thing we knew at the time was Wasted Years. But we'd listen to the whole fucking album side to side. <laughs> because we spent our hard-earned cash on that album. You know what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely do. And you... Even if you didn't like anything but Wasted Years on that album. You will find something. You will make yourself like that album. Yes. And there's that that dedication to an artist and a dedication to a love of music that to me kind of permeates this movie. Yeah. And it's just all over it. And uh, it really just, I mean, it just gives me the warm and fuzzy feeling that music does. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, as most of you know who listen to the show i was an ex i'm an ex-musician i think todd was an ex-musician as well um you know we, we weren't professionals right but no, i mean no. we we can if you can play an instrument and you played in a band you're a musician at some point okay so you know i've played music i've written songs i've done my share yeah, yeah and it's still one of my greatest passions i don't do it anymore i miss it i often have uh i had a really bad friendship that ended over music and it just it turned me away from it completely and it's really a shame uh that that i lost i have never lost my love of music i can say that but i have lost my love of playing music and um you know this thing it just reminds me of how much music meant to me and what an escape it was as a child as a young man Mm. and uh yeah man you'll hear it in my score it probably doesn't dictate. I mean, because the film is a little sloppy. Let me let me say that. But in a lot of ways, it's in the spirit well, it of the music. It. Yeah, it's in the spirit of the music. It's in yeah. the spirit of the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's just enough character development, I think, for me to just. I mean, I smiled a lot again watching it this time. It just makes me smile. It's one of those movies. So I'll kick it over to you. All righty. Uh, so yeah. Um, like you were just saying, this is this is uh, rather it's a wacky comedy in a lot of ways, and uh, I I do also think that it does go a decent way to actually having us uh, like the protagonists in it. So you know, for every like uh, explosion that chars up some jerk, uh, there's enough straight stuff to develop the uh, the characters. Um, 
you know, enough to uh, to get us to like them. And there are plenty of gags that are practically throwaway and completely unremarked upon. Uh, I mean, a lot, uh, which kind of makes them that much more effective for me. Yeah. Uh, I like that, you know, when you just have something going on in the background that, you know, maybe you see. It's almost like those um, the Sergio Aragones uh, cartoons yeah. in Mad Magazine that they would just have in the gutters. Yeah. Uh, of the page and they, just they, be like picking them out there's this interesting thing that him and dante used to do in the early films where they would have it almost felt like mad magazine or sergio argonis mm-hmm. or you know like the early zucker brothers stuff it just there'd be like this spoof i mean the zucker brothers would hit you in the face with it but if you watch a zucker brothers john a or um, uh, abrams film zucker abrams production if you watch it there's also a lot of stuff going on in the background oh yeah yeah but arkish he really loved he really loved to put stuff in the background you're right i mean a lot of times there's something completely insane going on in the background <laughs> while he's making a joke in the foreground. So it's it's yeah. it's interesting. So, I love that kind of thing. I love that kind of uh, that kind of depth that you put in there. Excuse me. Yep. So uh, Bankley Jr. does his uh, his classic kind of asshole shtick, uh, and you know Alan Garfield, like we said, he gets to play a truly nice guy here. Uh, by contrast to that, and the thing that I love about Begley's uh, lap dogs is they're played by, like you said, Fabian and Bobby Sherman, uh, which I think is some pretty sly casting. Since it is, uh, these guys were teen idols and completely the antithesis of what this film has in its heart. I think. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it's it's pretty uh, pretty smart stuff. Yeah, pretty it's, clever. It's funny. Um. So yeah, the actual show. Uh, takes up a large part of the runtime, and you know it's this disparity of the bands and the personalities that I find to be really something. Uh, you got you know you got a bunch of hippie stoners, you got punks, you got a blues act, which I love that all the guys at the blues funeral are blind. Yes, it's very funny. <laughs> uh, you, got, you got Lou Reed basically being Lou Reed. You uh-huh. know he needs some tragedy in his life to create and so on. Um, and it's really this marvelous sort of uh, wet dream uh, for music lovers where everyone's appreciated. Without the uh, without the lines of demarcation and the the click mentality that a lot of music snobs live by, uh, and you know, of course, it's also very much a, a protest against the the sort of corporate music industry, which is you know dull and gray and evil, uh, which we actually see in the in the uh, the movie itself in mm-hmm. the boardroom. Um, and let's see here. Do-do-do-do. So Malcolm McDowell, he gets the uh, he's, he's Reggie Wanker. Obviously, it's a very special little character. He gets one of the film's many standout moments. Uh, not only when he's carrying on with his pecker, which I got a kick out of the uh, the line. If you've got something to say, spit it out. Um, but uh, you know, there's also this moment when his poster jabs its tongue out at Stacy Nelkin. So you know, Malcolm, even when he's not there, uh, is completely there. Uh, and we get to watch, uh, we get to watch McDowell eat, which, you know, I think that he is, uh, bar none, one of cinema's great, uh, great chewers, great lip smackers. Uh, and we get to see that in full effect here. Uh, so, you know, there's that for all of you who like to watch Malcolm McDowell eat. Uh, let's see. There are, there's so many different elements going on in the film. Uh, I think that it could easily lose itself, but it never totally does. I think that Arkish does uh, a pretty uh, expert job of balancing out everything, giving everybody a, a, a moment to shine and being charming and goofy, um, all often at the same time, uh, which is kind of amazing considering that there are so many, uh, you know, that guy character actors in this, which we've already gone through all of that sort of thing. Uh, I love the men's room gag. Uh, it's very accurate uh, and it's so fucking gross. You go, uh, Stern has to go into the, uh, the men's room and they make it out to be like a mission into the jungle. Oh, uh, yeah. and you walk in there and the, there's water up to your knees and there's a shark swimming. 
uh, and everybody's yeah. just standing at the urinals. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, the shark is a you know it's another pop culture joke, right? So exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, I love that. Uh, that's just another one of those beautiful little moments. Um, I think that seeing Paul Bartel crowd surfing is pretty fucking sublime uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that unfortunately he does not get to interact with the uh, the lovely Mary Warren of more. Uh, though their moment together is good, uh, and it is nice always to to see them together, even if it's only for a brief moment. Yeah. Um, the drum solo sequence is not entirely difficult to swallow, uh, because it goes on and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. Also has another, uh, that also has a gross moment with the sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just you, uh, you can hear it lapping in his hair and going all over the place. It's so gross. <laughs> uh but you know the end though there's there's nothing really new here uh but it's not it's not trying to reinvent the wheel or anything either yeah there's there's more life i gotta say let me just get this off my chest there's more life in john dinsmore's performance as the drummer for reggie wanker than any concert footage of any door show i can ever think of (laughs) well he might have been getting paid more for this i don't know i mean he's a great drummer he was a great drummer but he he uh he was just not known to be you know he wasn't a rock and roll drummer you know what I mean? Like he wasn't, well, he wasn't a stereotypical rock and roll drummer. Maybe those guys didn't really come. Well, no, John Bonham was that guy. I was going to say, maybe those guys didn't really come along until Tommy Lee and Alex Van Halen. No, no, but no. Yeah. Keith Moon. Keith uh, Moon. Yeah, John yeah. Bonham. Yeah. The drummer's always the crazy one, right? Yeah. 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 It seems to be anyway. But yeah, Keith Moon and John Bonham are definitely the two that, yeah, those guys Pop were. Your head. Well, yeah. even Ginger Baker talking. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. Ginger Baker. So, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. Drummers are a unique breed. Indeed. Uh, that's what they always say is, you know, you know, when it's time to, uh, you know, when it's time for the band to break up is when the drummer says, Hey guys, let's work on some of my stuff. Um, exactly. <laughs> Zing. It's when the drummer starts learning how to play guitar. That's when you're in little, trouble. Little shit. Yeah. Right. Dave Grohl. Yep. Uh, <laughs> when you're in oh, trouble. I kid, I kid. Yeah. Um, but the movie, <laughs> yeah, it's a, a little shot there. Uh, the movie's a pure celebration, right? It's a party. Uh, and Arkish, I think, has uh, the skills and the attitude to make it work technically and as entertainment. Um, and I think that, yeah, I mean, we've we've pretty much covered everything that you can cover about this movie at this point, uh, because it is, you know, you really do kind of, you do kind of have to give give in to the time uh, that this thing was and the attitude that this thing that this thing has. Yeah. Uh, and if you've ever been in that situation, especially if you've been in that situation or you've had that sort of passion. Uh, for music like uh, like Arkish has, uh, I think that this movie will do a hell of a lot more for you. But I still think that it's a, a darn good time, uh, even outside of that. So yeah. uh, that's pretty much all that I got, man. I would we pretty much yeah hit all the bases on this one. Yeah, the uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm glad it's getting a Blu-ray release. I will be picking yeah. it up. I mean, it's oh yeah, a, hell yeah. It's a movie that I will watch time and again. I mean, it's something that I would probably revisit like on a yearly basis. It's that kind of I can movie. see that, yeah. Yeah. Uh okay. Uh maybe MVT for me on this one is pretty easy. It's Alan Arkish. I mean, it's a personal project for him and uh it feels like it and it's really quite wonderful. It's quite the love letter, as they say, uh for filmmakers sometimes. You know, they said that a lot about Tarantino and Hollywood with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But this is definitely this to me kinda nails it more than that one did. Well, uh, I think it helps that you know Arkish was actually there. Yeah, it does help. And what he and what he's putting on screen. I didn't read about it, right? So right. 
Um, make or break, man. That's kind of a tough one because there's a lot of great moments in this movie. Yeah. Uh, shit. That's a. <laughs> it's tough. It's yeah, tough that, on this. That is, that is a tough one because I mean, there's a lot of great scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. I gotta say. Okay, so this is going to seem like a silly one because there's so many great scenes. But it's one of the most memorable things to me. But there's a great moment when King Blues is smoking some pot with uh, Captain Cloud and his uh, and Franklin Ajaye. Ajaye? Ajay? Ajay. Ajaye. Uh, I haven't said his name since, the, con- uh, since the Convoy review, if you remember. <laughs> convoy. Um, <laughs> there's a great moment where he stands up on the railing and then walks on air. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you're down for that, then you're down for the whole movie. So I think it, it it it's a it's a small kind of microcosm type of moment, but it's the kind of feeling that floating feeling I had watching this movie, mm-hmm. kind of like a natural high. So I loved it. Okay, uh, my score for this movie eight point five out of ten. I fucking love Whoa. it. Yeah, I fucking love this thing. I love it. I'll, I'll I'm shamelessly in love with it. I'll be in love with it until I die. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Probably at this point in my life, it's got to be in the. It's got to be one of my favorite films of all time. It's got to be. I've never done a list like that, but I mean, it would certainly be in the conversation. Which is weird because two of Arkish's films, oddly, would probably be in the conversation. So he's got a pretty high batting average. How about that? Yeah, it just that is kind of unexpected. Yeah, I mean, I don't love the music in the movie so much. I do love it. No. But it, you don't necessarily have to be into any particular style of music because it's so varied. Well, I think he's kind of making a comment on that and that the Hoochie well, yeah. Coochie Man song itself can be done so many different ways, right? Yeah, it unifies. Yeah, Yeah, so it brings everybody together yes. and it shows that there is no differences in any music. The, it's just a matter of taste and style and it's all subjective. So it's the same material just reinterpreted and that's very important to art. So I think that, you know, he's making that comment there. So Yeah, anyway, I absolutely agree. Yeah, love it, man. Love the movie. Beautiful. Uh so MVT, yeah. I mean, it's it's Arkish. I think this is really his heart on his sleeve here, uh, in both his experience working at the Fillmore and, you know, capturing what made it special. Um and he does it, you know, very, very well. Make or break. I mean, yeah, you you could just give it to just about any scene in the picture, but I think I'm going to give it to Piggy's time on stage. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, that's where my heart is uh, for the most part. And for me, it's when the movie really ramps up, which is really kind of saying something, all things being equal, because this movie's got a hell of a lot of energy to spend. Uh, and it spends it, you know, uh, always w- always with something in reserve in the in the tank. So, uh, And score for me, I'm a little bit lower than you, uh, 7.5 out of 10. I mean, I still love this movie tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um not quite on the same level as you, uh, but uh, I think that you also have a much more, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Let's say spiritual. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a good word. Relationship with it. Yeah. Um, so, you know. It it's a religious to, uh, experience for me. Yeah, 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 right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I I, uh, I absolutely think that uh, everybody should uh, look into getting the blue when it hits. Uh, if it hits, hopefully it hits. Um, and uh, yeah, make it popular enough to... Uh, to give Arkish some uh, some money, get the guy paid a little bit, hopefully. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Um, okay, that's our thoughts on Get Crazy. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and discuss 
American Psycho. We'll be back right after this. Sometimes with a song, somebody, like, there's an inside joke. Like, so, like, among Phil Collins and his friends, maybe, they just started saying the word Susudio, and they're like, hey, I can write a song <laughs> called Susudio. They were probably, yeah, well, they were probably like, drunk, and he was just like, I bet you couldn't write a song yeah. called Susudio. Yeah, and as we know, Phil Collins liked, uh, for a long time, liked to get drunk. <laughs> so, uh, I wonder if, yeah, I wonder that, because I, I don't think Susudio means anything uh, outside of what it is. And there's a lot of songs like that throughout history, right? Where a word, like you can't even like if if some if you were named like a car, like a Kia Susudio, <laughs> like you couldn't, you'd have to pay Phil Collins. I mean, the song is so trademarked at this point, right? <laughs> you laugh, but you know it sounds like a car, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> it totally does. I got me one of them new Kia Susudios, man. Yeah. <laughs> It's got surround sound. Fucking 17 miles to the gallon, man. Yeah, 17 miles to the gallon, and, you know, you can play uh, I Can Feel It Coming in the Air Tonight. Do, 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 <laughs> Yeah. All right, so let's get into American Psycho. Now, you may wonder why I picked this movie. Well, um, truth is, as we've gone along in doing this show, it might seem like, you know, we do a lot of moot classic films, we do a lot of this, we do a lot of that, but the truth is a lot of these films that we talked about in the beginning of the show are 20 years old now. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was worth a revisit. I actually had the Blu-ray sitting out to kind of rewatch it because I was like, yeah, I want to go back and look at that because I had some feelings about it back in the day. And I was like, I want to go back and look at that and check that out. And then, you know, as is often the case with me and the show, um, whatever I have planned to watch on my little docket tends to be what I end up picking to cover. Uh, just because it saves me, you know, it's two birds, one stone, that type of thing. So, um, but yeah, American Psycho, Mary Heron, uh, night two, year 2000, a wealthy New York city investment banking executive, Patrick Bateman hides his alternate psychopathic ego from his coworkers and friends as he delves deeper into his violent hedonistic fantasies. So this film notoriously, um, was uh, taken from a book, right? A Brady Stanellis yep. book that uh, was super notorious back in the day. Um, it was certainly controversial, yes. Yeah, because it was so transgressive. Mm-hmm. And the book still is, by the way, much more transgressive than the movie. But the movie doesn't hold back much. 
I got to say, I mean, maybe by today's standards, I mean, if Gaspar Noé makes this movie, it's a different movie, but it's still, oh, yeah. it's still a really aggressive a film in a lot of ways and, and, and transgressive in a lot of ways. And, um, yeah, let's, uh, I, you know, again, I had a different type of relationship with it back then. Just revisit. I, I, I don't think it's much different, but, uh, no. let's, uh, let's see what you thought, Todd. I don't know if you'd seen it before or not. I'm assuming you had. Uh, I had, I had, um, this is only the second time I've seen it for the record. This is only the second time I've seen it for the record. Uh, because yeah, when I originally watched it, I really didn't, uh, didn't get, I mean, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I get it for what it is. I, I don't get, you know, I wasn't really particularly blown away with, uh, why it's held in, in, in the regard that it is. Although I got a little bit more out of it. I think this time around watching yeah. it with a more critical eye. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the movie is, uh, the movie, everything is status here, right? Uh, normal people, you know, can't understand, you know, quote unquote restaurants, uh, where you get these ridiculously conjured exotic sounding dishes that are meant to be looked at and, you know, and most of all paid for. Um, but if you want to move up, this is what you do. Uh, and that's, you know, what the, the opening scene is with all of these, these little plates of, uh, of shit that, uh, get passed around with like a leaf on it and it's drizzled in some kind of balsamic vinaigrette and everybody loses their mind. Um, and uh, so Bateman and his pals are pretty much their prototypical yuppies, and Josh Lucas plays uh, arguably the slimiest, as always. Uh, you know, it's a knack that he's uh, perfected in his career, uh, and he certainly has that here. Um, the comedy in the movie is heavy right from the credits that uh, I think, you know, they pull the rug out from under you. Uh, and it also plays to the theme of veneer, uh, of the of the film and you know kind of what lies beneath it uh, there's a uh, there's a heavy emphasis on on white in the movie uh, it's clean it contrasts just about everything uh, and you could project things onto it kind of like Bateman the Bateman character himself yeah uh, similarly with mirrors and reflections you know he tells the bartender how he wants to kill her and a shot from his reflection in the bar mirror and there's there's constant 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 references uh, to him looking at himself and people looking at themselves and you know reflections always looking back at them uh, it's it's all in there um, but you know the Bateman character himself he's the sort of serial killer that we we love in his sort of um, his sort of uh, meticulous, rigorous methodology. Yes. Um, but he states flat out that there's only the quote-unquote idea of uh, of Patrick Bateman, which isn't true. Uh, I don't think there is. You know, there is a Patrick Bateman. It's just that he's you know psychotic. Um, he tells Witherspoon that uh, he wants to fit in, but you know he never can. Uh, of course, the whole thing is focused on the the whole movie is focused on the the shallowness of the '80s and rampant capitalism and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, they talk about uh, these guys sit around and they talk about ending apartheid and feel, feeding the poor and et cetera. But it's it's uh, it's this programming uh, for appearance sake. Uh, and even then you're unsure if it's meant overtly as like a callous joke or if, you know, these people genuinely say these things, uh, because they're supposed to, um, and either way it's false, right? It rings false because we know that it's false because we know that these guys would never do any of the things that they say, uh, that they, they should be doing. But I think that, uh, Heron is very conscious 
uh, of how she shoots Bale in the movie. Uh, she loves to do things like obscure his face, uh, and her compositions, you know, tend toward uh, toward being more balanced. I think um, compositions rather than uh, being off kilter. She does a lot of fluid. Uh, movements with the camera. She uses a lot of uh, when she uses uh, close-ups. They're really claustrophobic. Uh, they really are, you know, intended to to bring you in there. And Bale, uh, who is an actor that I don't particularly love, uh, I think does a great job uh, as well uh, as Heron does uh, with his own. You know, he does this this really. Uh, he has a real penchant for being able to do thinly veiled rage, uh, and he really brings that out in this movie. Uh, but yeah, I've never really, I've never um, taken much of a shine to him as an actor, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Uh, I mean, I recognize his talent. And he's certainly one of these guys that goes full method. Uh, if you look at, you know, just look at the the machinist and uh, or anything where he's he's either fatted himself up or thinned himself out to uh, to excruciating limits uh, to uh, to fully get all of that. But um, I mean, as far as as far as uh, my preference. I've never really cared for him all that much. Um, but that's not to say he's not talented. I don't think that. Um, we do find out that uh, Patrick Bateman is a J&B drinker uh, because he does yeah. order it. Yeah, that, uh, even though we a, don't get to see the bottle. Yeah, that's a great moment, actually. I'd, I'd totally forgotten about that. Yeah, right? Um, I love the... Uh, I love the shot of uh, when Jared Leto's in Bateman's apartment with the uh, the newspaper uh, style section taped to the floor underneath him. Uh, it's just a fantastic, uh, fantastic moment because you know exactly what's going to happen. Um, it's always fascinated me that you know Bateman, you know, he waxes poetic about Huey Lewis in the news, but uh, he never brings up the uh, the Ray Parker Jr. Uh, debacle. So, yeah. um, yeah, with the whole Ghostbusters thing, yeah, that's, right? That's, yeah, yeah. Um, Very popular story. It needs, that, it needs yeah. to be in the conversation, man. It needs, needs to be, to be in the conversation. Let's see. So, Bateman, he's barely concealing his crimes, and that's, I think, part of the comedy is that no one notices the blood streak on the floor, the the suspiciously bulky overnight bag. Um you know, instead of uh, instead of questioning what might be in the bag, it's you know the type of bag that's the focus. Um, and plus, you know, the Bateman character himself is such a non-entity uh, that people mistake him for other anonymous yuppies. I mean, you could argue the whole movie is his uh, trying to be noticed in this culture of uh, of sameness, of uh, robotic. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, robotic uh, complacency, not complacency. Uh, conformity. That's the word. There you go. Um, and I think that that's uh, that's part of what's uh, what's going on here as well. Uh, you could, if you wanted to, pick the film apart in its minutia, um, but it's all of a fairly layered critique, and it uh, it kind of sticks. It sticks to its guns for the most part. It's pretty consistent. Uh, and it's very consistent when it comes to the bloodletting. Uh, it doesn't shy away, uh, and it could be both brutal and ludicrous at the same time uh, in a lot of these scenes, and especially if you look at stuff like the chainsaw scene, uh, the infamous chainsaw scene. Um, so let's see here. Do, 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 do. Uh, Willem Dafoe does manage to show up, uh, and he's kind of the fly in the ointment for a little bit there, um, you know, because he doesn't. Um, 
he's kind of the outsider character in the same way that Chloe Sevigny is uh, as well with her Jean character. Uh, so Defoe, he doesn't really belong to the upper echelon, uh, though he's certainly not an idiot, even though, you know, guys like Bateman will treat him like an idiot because he's not uh, moneyed. Um, if anything, I think that uh, the Defoe character, he holds Bateman and that sort of person in contempt for their, uh, their vapidity. He recognizes uh, you know, how shallow they are, uh, and, and by that, how empty, uh, their lives pretty much are. And he kind of, you know, you almost kind of get the feeling that he might pity them in a little way while he's also trying to kind of, um, kind of snare them, uh, in a trap. Uh, it kind of feels like, uh, let's see. Uh, when, uh, Bateman does the, uh, the Ed Gein story, uh, that's basically me whenever I'm in public. Um, <laughs> yeah, always, always with the inappropriate shit. Yeah, uh, that's what it's, you know, uh, there's there's, mo- there's these moments throughout the movie where his his armor is beginning to crack, mm-hmm. and I will, I'll bring this up now. I mean, it's a big part of my review. At some point during this movie, I don't know what's reality and what's not anymore. Well, I think that that's kind of what the point. Yeah, um, and it's always been the thing I struggle the most with with this movie. Because it feels like everything is very based in reality. It's an odd reality, yes. but it feels like yes. that. But then at some point, and of course that's a studio moment, that's during the most awkward threesome probably in the history of cinema. It, meh, yeah, it might be. But definitely got one of the best lines of all time. Don't stare at it, eat it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's... It, it, at some point, every time I've seen this film, and again, it's only been twice, but I always feel like I get lost. And that's my biggest criticism of this movie. I, I, the commentary is still there, and I appreciate the commentary, and I appreciate what Mary Heron's going for. I think she makes a pretty good movie here, a pretty solid movie. And I like, un, unlike you, I like Christian Bale, although I think he is a prick in real life. Uh, mm. I do think he's, uh, again, I don't know him, but he just seems like he might be a prick, very self-indulgent prick. Um, but... I do. He does work for me on camera, and you know his method acting is insane. That is true. But all those elements are great. But I just I don't know. The at some point the story starts to feel really empty to me, and I wanted to get this out there because I see a lot of, especially from a lot of our friends on Letterbox, I see a lot of five star reviews. Yeah, I would absolutely say and no. I, yeah, and I'm not saying that they're, you know, they're not wrong. If that's what how they feel about that, then that's great. I just don't see it. I just to right. me, it, right. this is not a this is a flawed film if anything. It's certainly not a five-star movie. No. It's not even close. Well, I think that part of the part of the flaw comes in, I mean, like you were saying, it's it's not it's it's that it kind of it kind of has to be it has to walk in two worlds while, well, you know, because in order for it to critique what it's critiquing in the way that it's critiquing it, it has to be, um, it has to be kind of the thing that it hates, right? At the same time that it's, yeah. it's critiquing it. And I think that that's kind of part of where the, where the, uh, the trouble lies. It kind of has to have its cake and eat it too. Um, but yeah, no. I, 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 as far as as far as this being, yeah, no, it, it is very flawed, uh, and I think that you're right about uh, what you're talking about with the whole you know dipping in and out of reality thing, because that very much comes up uh, once you get to the end. Um, so, okay, so I was watching uh, when you get to the uh, the scene there with the 
uh, Bateman and the uh, the Matt Ross character in the bathroom. Um, it's great watching him watching the Bateman character get really flustered in the bathroom scene. Yeah. Um, cause the only thing that can, can rob him of his power kind of is when he's confronted with something even more, you know, verboten than murder, uh, especially at the time at the time. Yeah. Cause it's all, it's all because it's all a male power trip. Right. Yeah. And it's also, uh, and it's, it's also the um, slight hint of the, uh, the whole AIDS scare. Yeah. It's that it's what you said, this power trip. It's, it's the moment when he, he loses control of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, for a lot of killers, at least from what my experience of reading about killers and watching documentaries and all these things, you know, control is a huge, huge factor. Yeah. Uh, power. Well, that's, that's what, that's you know, what a lot of, uh, that's what a lot of the, the prevailing theories are about, um, you know, uh, rape as well. Yes. Cause it's a power thing. It's not about, you know, it's not about sex. No, it's not. It hits, it hits these sexual triggers in the brain, but it's really, and, and, you know, power can be a sexual Effort. It can be an aphrodisiac. I mean, people can get off on power more than they can get off on sex. Absolutely. But those two can go hand in hand as well. And uh, yes. same thing with greed and and all these things. And I think that's Easton Ellis's commentary he's trying to make here. He's trying to make this commentary on, you know, the American male, American white male, we mm-hmm. should say, and how, you know, materialistic and how vague and empty by the 80s the American white male had become. Uh, I think that's what he's going for. And you know how power plays a big part on everything they do and everything they are. I mean, this movie, I mean, I think fight club does it better, but I think that, you know, this is, you know, clearly it's, it's, it's poking a lot of fun at American lifestyles. Right. And what we think of as far as power and success and, and all these things, I think, you know, I think it's poking, it's satire in that way. It is. It absolutely is. Um, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty slick, uh, in terms of what it's, what it's trying to do, how, mm-hmm. how well it does it in, in translation from, uh, book to screen is kind of where it stumbles a bit. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, um, yeah, the first 40 minutes or so is, is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, yeah, think, no, it does start to, it does start to muddle. It's like that one point. It's like at some point in the movie, the movie blinks and when it yes. blinks, yeah. Like I, the chainsaw scene is a scene that, to well, me, is that's a total blink. Very ten to midnight. Yeah, that's a. <laughs> it's very. It's very ten to midnight. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even do. I didn't even think about the comparisons between those two, but it really is very ten to midnight. Um, but it, it's also it's also for me, it's the real moment when the movie loses me. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it's the moment when it goes one step past. Yeah, and, and and I like transgression, and I like those things. You know that we've talked about that on the show. My my proclivity for those kind of things, but it, I mean, visually well, tra- it looks cool. There's transgression cool. and there's cartoon transgression. Yeah, I think. it's absurd. It's absurdity. Right. And I understand why it's there. It makes sense to me. It just at that point, I'm like, oh, come on, you know. It, don't don't get me wrong. I I still like what Heron's going for. It's just I I I'm just confused. All these things are taking place too. I think, you know, there's some kind of commentary too to be made. You know, at one point, he kills a character in his then the best kill scene I think in the movie, uh, the Jared Leto scene. Uh, mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, I guess if you want to call it that, but I don't think it is. This is the uh, hip to be square moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's dragging the body through the lobby of the thing, and he's leaving a, a snail trail of blood. Yep. 
Yep. And the guard is not even paying attention. So obviously, doesn't even look. Yeah. So obviously, there's commentary there as well. Yes. Yeah. That we don't look yeah. at successful white men as killers. But, right. Yeah. 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 Whatever so, he's doing is okay because yeah. Yeah. yeah, because we he's he lives in a nice posh place. He's clearly successful. Clearly, he would never have thoughts like that. No, he's no, educated no, no. and you know Harvard Business School. Blah blah blah. He's he's all these things. Well, and plus, I will not question that authority. Yeah, and one of my favorite moments in this movie, actually, and I don't know if it's a dig by Willem Dafoe's detective character or if it's because if it's not, I think it's genius. It's the moment when Willem Dafoe talks about how much he loves Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah, right. And it's a moment of kind of rejection for Patrick Bateman that somebody older than him. And by the way, William Defoe's only like 45 years old when he makes this movie <laughs> <laughs> makes me feel ancient uh, because he's looked like he's 45 since 1980. Yes, um, he does. The dejection that another generation likes the music he likes potentially because he, you know, he thinks he's so cool, right? He thinks he he's so on the on the edge, on the cutting edge of things and stuff like that. Well, yeah, but yeah, yeah, but he has to he has to flaunt, right? Yeah, that's why he has he has to, every time he puts on a CD. Yeah, in one of these scenes, he has to give a dissertation on the meaning behind these vapid '80s uh, pop songs. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just an interesting moment to me of Bateman's going that you know it's like you bastard, you can't like the music I like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you think know? that's in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely in that. And some of those some of those reaction shots with uh, Bale, some of the best acting. You know, he's known to be kind of over the top sometimes and certainly known to be an actor who gets totally involved in every character he plays. Yep. Um, some of those reaction shots he has in this movie, pretty amazing. I know I read an article a long time ago, Mary Heron said that he could sweat on command. <laughs> that I is, find that easy to believe, actually. Yeah, it, it, you know, that, that tells you what kind of actor uh, Christian Bale is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's certainly yeah, he's devoted. Uh, I will grant him that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. Your take on him? Yeah. I mean, I totally get it. Like, I, I, I can't question. You know, you not liking him as an actor that correct. much because, again, he he kind of reminds me of so many actors that I really appreciate. You know, like I really appreciate Marlon Brando, but I, it's not a kind of guy I would like to. I don't think I would like to have hung out with him. He seemed like he'd have been a pro prick. Yeah. 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 And, you know, but uh, some of that insanity on screen, sometimes it translates really well. And I think Bale's kind of whatever he's got going on in his personal life, he he, he brings it to the screen. I, I'll, I'll give him that. Whatever that is. I don't know what that is, but he brings it. No, he does. I would absolutely. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Uh, it's just a, it's a personal thing. It's a personal preference. Sure. thing. Maybe it's the maybe it's the, the the like the fangs that he has. I don't know. The teeth. The, yeah, the, might be that. So, so his delivery in this film, it's something I had forgotten. It is so game show advertisement commercial. Now, obviously, that's probably on purpose. That's absolutely on purpose. But it is amazing, the delivery he has. Because, I mean, he has a really thick English accent. And yeah. uh, it's amazing yeah. how well he delivers. Well, what, I really like Huey Lewis and the news. You know, this <laughs> very much this radio kind of talk, you know, this is it's, the gentleman's guy. Overly enunciated, overly. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got this kind of smirk and snottiness and stuff. It's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's telling you, he's showing you how, uh, how deep he is. Yes. By giving you all this surface bullshit that, uh, most people know just, you know, without having to say it. Yeah. No, I get it. Um, Okay, so we get to uh, the Chloe Sevigny scene, Sevigny, Sevigny, whatever, uh, uh, and that uh, this 
scene works to humanize Bateman, I think, much more than any of the little hints uh, that have been dropped up until then. You know, we kind of get this thing that, you know, he might have come from a broken home and this, that, and the other thing, or whatever the reason that he was created in the first place. Uh, but I don't think that he ever gets absolved by the film. Um, and he never really deserves any sort of redemption either. But the the seven-year character is the uh, the sort of the dream of a normal life that Paul knows that's impossible. So, you know, the, at this point, he's really, really, really starts to crumble. Um, and, you know, when... when uh, when he does crumble, I think the bail really goes full tilt. Uh, and that's when we oh, get yeah. that, you know, everything from like the, the ATM machine, uh, on, um, and yeah. you know, the last 20 minutes of the, the film, I think do a pretty good job of, uh, playing with reality in a, in a pretty subtle way. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it makes the, the ending a little bit, uh, or I should say that much more, uh, horrifying because I think that ultimately at the end of the day, uh, the film is about uh, the loss of identity, yes. and uh, and you know to set it in '80s culture, which, which was so surface and so you know yeah. all about appearances, is really kind of uh, it's pretty brilliant, uh, all things being equal. But I think that when you when you break it all down, um, and you know this is what you were you were kind of talking about before. I, I I for me, I don't think that he actually does kill anybody in the movie. Hmm. I think that he wants to. Uh, hmm. I think that um, interesting. I think that he thinks about it constantly because he's he's got all these issues. I think that he doesn't actually do it ever. Yeah. Uh, I think that all these these little episodes are just him acting out because, um, because he's just cracking under this uh, this pressure to be. Uh, something that he doesn't know how to be, um, or being, you know, you're forcing himself to to be this thing that maybe maybe he hates. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think you could you could pontificate on the reasons why, you know, till you're blue in the face. Uh, but ultimately, I think that yeah, it's it's not about uh, it's not about anything other than loss of identity, and that's why I think that the I think it's the final line of the movie uh, when he says, you know, this confession means nothing. Yeah. Um, is that, but, uh, you know, I think that's kind of the brilliant thing as well is that you, you know, you could, uh, equally make the argument a pretty strong argument that, you know, these things all do happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you know, because we're playing in this ab absurd, uh, you know, we're, we're playing in this absurd, um, commentary that, uh, that all these things, you know, that he gets away with it because that's a lot of cleanup that he would have to do. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of things that have to that would have to get forgiven that don't get commented on at all. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the movie, where you would think that they would be, you know, if not if not uh, headlines, then certainly um, a, a point of interest at least in in casual conversation. Uh, and they're not, and I think that that's why you know everything is happening inside his head. I don't think he actually goes through with anything that he said, and that's also why uh, we get all of these these. Um, these scenes where when he gets really, really frustrated, he will snap at somebody and what Heron will do is she'll cut to a different angle or she'll cut to a reflection or she'll cut to, you know, it's just a different way of looking at it because that's in his, like uh, when he's at the dry cleaners, when he's in the bar, when he's, you know, mm -hmm. all of these things is because he's giving you, that's the internal Bateman that's like, that wants to kill people, that wants to fucking have this, you know, rage and just lash out and tell people what he honestly thinks of them and all this shit. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that he wouldn't normally do. Uh, and I think that that's a lot of uh, what's going on. So that's why it's, it's actually pretty subtle, some pretty subtle filmmaking in that regard. But you could, you could absolutely make the argument either way. 
uh, with the movie. And I think that's kind of what makes it, uh, what makes it, um, as good as it is. Uh, but yeah, I, I do agree that it's, it's not, uh, it's not a hundred percent. Um, it's, it's not a five star for me. Absolutely not. Uh, but I did get a bit more out of it, uh, than I did, uh, previously, like I said before. Um, even though, I mean, everything, everything that it's trying to say, I think, uh, it says pretty, uh, pretty well, pretty, uh, smoothly. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I'm assuming you're done. Yep. I have, you know, I, I have mixed feelings on this movie. I both think it's really wonderful and I both think it's, uh, a bit of a mess and it's, uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's down the middle in any way. I think it's more of a solid film than it is a bad film. I just think some of the, or not a bad film or a misguided film, but I think it's, I, I don't know. I just, for whatever reason, there's always that point where it just, it goes over to me, but I find yeah. it interesting when you talk about you know, does he kill anybody in the movie? So when I when I go back and I'm I'm sitting here thinking about that as you say it, I'm thinking, okay, well now some more of it makes sense altogether, right? Because if he's living inside of his head, you know, then you know it's it's it turns into a little bit of so so there's an element of him living his life by way of media. He watches mm-hmm. porn movies. He watches movies. He listens to music a lot. Well, and I find I find that interesting. And I'm just gonna to just sh- shove this one in there. Uh, is that I find it interesting that that's become even more the thing today than it was in the '80s. Although yeah. this movie is focused on the '80s, yeah. uh, and I find it I, really really interesting that you know we live outside of ourselves even more now yes. than we did back then. Yes, and you know you know we we. This to bring this conversation up again. We talk about the Joker, the Joker film, and horrible movie. Yeah, Taxi Driver and all these movies. But for whatever reason, because of the timing of Joker, you know, and David Fincher since went on record saying it's a, you know, it's allegedly, you know, a, a crime against the mentally ill. I still don't agree with that. I still don't know what everybody else saw in the in the Joker film that me and you didn't see. Right. right. Um, because I think there are troubled people out there. There are a hundred percent troubled people out just, there. Just to put a comic book uh, sheen on it doesn't necessarily mean it's. I don't think it minimizes it. I don't think it diminishes it. I don't think, I don't it, think it trivializes it, it. I don't think it does that either. And I certainly don't think it makes it irresponsible. No. If anything, I don't think so. you could say that Freddie Sinellis's novel and Mary Heron's film are more irresponsible than that. If you want well, to, we could that say argument. that about anything that's transgressive, sure. though, couldn't we? Sure. Yeah, we could. I, it's really, it's really which side of the table you're saying it from. Yeah. I mean, none of us as human beings, those of us who act in our normal borders, none of us wants to believe that life can be so fragile as to have somebody grab a gun, start shooting up a room full of people. Nobody wants that to happen. I mean, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to believe that's the world we live in. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of problems. And I'm not comparing them to this movie. This movie is obviously a satire Mm -hmm. of violence and the me culture and all those kind of things. But... You know, to say something's irresponsible now is very comical to me because it's just like these films have been around since the beginning of filmmaking, probably. I mean, maybe not. Maybe in the 40s and 50s and 30s, maybe there wasn't, but there kind of was. I mean, we we did White Heat a long time ago, right? I mean, the Cagney yep. character in that is just, he's just pure fire. Yep. And, uh, you know, I think as human beings, we want our stories to be arch like that. We want the drama that that kind of stuff brings. Uh, and we can disassociate ourselves with it if we 
of normal thinking if we don't have an illness. I'm not saying that films make people do anything. I've, I've never been a firm believer in that, that films, that music, that books uh, make people do things. But at the same time, I, I don't I can't, think they make them do things. I do think they influence well, they have what to. gets done. Well, they have to. And that's, right. what's, that's what's funny is, you know, people always talk about films and video games, for instance, for young children and how dangerous those things are. When I could give my son a book that was published in 1920 that would be way worse than anything he could play in a video game or watch in a movie now. These things have been around forever. Uh, these kind of transgressive pieces of fiction or works of art or however you want to look at it. People process things in different ways. I mean, the most influential book of all time has killed more people than any other book on the face of the earth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that book is, well, I don't even have to say the title of it. If you don't know what I'm I talking about, <laughs> yeah, I'm, sadly, some people probably don't know what I'm talking about. But I mean, that's just it, right? I mean, art is influential, but how we process that as human beings is very interesting to me. I can watch this and get total entertainment out of it. Is it dark? Yes. Does it make me want to go out and get a chainsaw and run naked through a hallway? Well, yes, but <laughs> no, but I mean, that that's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, he lives through culture and mm -hmm. because he has an illness, he doesn't know any other way to survive. So there's a little line in this movie that I think is very important that I think a lot of people probably wouldn't get the first time around, but it's a moment right before he kills the Paul Allen character. I'll go back to that murder and Paul Allen says, hey, Bateman, why do you have the style section all over the floor? Yep. That is very important because yep. that is, again, that's the only piece of newspaper he's got everywhere. So yep. that tells you that he only hangs on to, he doesn't care about what's going on in the real world because he doesn't live in the real world. No. He lives in Patrick Bateman's world. This is a man mm -hmm. or a character because, you know, you could argue that maybe he doesn't even real. This is a character who lives by what people tell him he's supposed to live by. He went to Harvard. He went to Harvard Business School, probably because he was told to do so. He has psychopathic tendencies that just get worse and worse and worse. He watches pornography. Probably learns how. That's where he learns how to have sex mm -hmm. from watching pornography. Obviously, the threesome. He's looking at himself more than he's looking at at the women. He gets a video camera out. That gets him off more than the sex itself does. Um, he's more obsessed with his own body than he is with the female body. Um. All of these things are things that an ill mind, if they were living through media or influence, would probably see. And I think that's the best commentary the movie makes, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because outside of that, I think the movie's, again, Mary Heron's a good filmmaker. I think she is. A, I think she's a really good filmmaker. I think she's underrated, actually, in uh, the the kind of world of film, filmmakers, but certainly women filmmakers. Um but she, I think at some point in this one, her commentary gets skewed. And when it does, again, you know, you're saying that you don't even know if it's taking place uh, if you look at it that way. But I feel like I feel like it really is, but only up until the Paul Allen murder. I think after that, I think none of it takes place. I think okay. it's, it's all in his head at that point. I think it's all at that point. I think it's all him living with the guilt of killing the Paul Allen character. Okay. Okay. So, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So, but, it, but, but I don't think she handles it perfectly. I think she handles it kind of messy. And I think that's why I come away from this movie every time thinking it's really, really well done. And I really like it. But 
it's not a masterpiece. It's not mm-hmm. the film I think some people think it is. Um, and that's just my opinion. Obviously, I think me and you share that opinion in some ways, but I, th- I, I th- think in a lot of ways I, th- we do. I think, yeah, I think, you know, your take on it with, you know, maybe none of it's happening. Hey, maybe. I mean, there's the same argument in Taxi Driver in a way. I mean, does any Absolutely. of it really happen? Well, sh- well sh- but Schrader's also said that the whole movie takes place in his mind. Yes. And, and you know, and then Joker, if you go back and look at that with a critical eye, not with some kind of anger that you already go into it with, yeah, you wonder if a lot of it actually took place. Uh, yeah. 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 So, you know, it, it people should, you got to stop sometimes, take a breath and and look at the story you're being told and i think part of the reason why i picked this movie part of the reason why well first of all i do have a love no doubt for transgressive cinema but part of the reason why i wanted to go back and revisit this was i'd read an article not too long ago about irresponsible filmmaking filmmaking is anarchy all these kind of things i'm I'm fascinated by these things right Mm -hmm. and how stories influence our lives how they influence our culture uh, the way we dress, the music we listen to. Certainly they do all these things. But what happens when one possibly confuses somebody who has a mental illness to do something terrible? So I started going through my film collection. I have a huge film collection, as those of you who probably know. I mean, I would never even mention the amount of films I own. It would be embarrassing to even mention how much money I've spent on films over the years. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I have a huge film collection. I mean, crates upon crates upon crates of films. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many movies I own. It's embarrassing. Uh, my wife just, uh, you know, she, bless her, she lets me live through, that. That's my that's my obsession, right? So she lets me live through that. You know, I don't know how many times I've bought a copy of, you know, people say they bought Evil Dead 2 a bunch of times. You don't even want to know how many times I bought Taxi Driver. <laughs> Yeah, right. But, I mean, those obsessions are fascinating to me. And I've watched these transgressive films over and over and over again over the years. And I I believe I'm perfectly sane. Uh, some people might not think that, but I believe I perfectly, I, you know, I'm perfectly fine. But I don't know. Anyway, that's just me getting that. Let me get to the movie, actually. So <laughs> uh, I do I do like Bell's performance in the movie. It is very predatory and uh, almost wolf-like in a way. Um, although I do think I like the writing more than I like the movie itself. I, 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 again, I think Mary Heron does a really good job. I think the movie's got a lot of style and I like what it's going for, but I think the writing is really the, the key here. But to me, this is Bale's thing. I mean, this is his coming out party. I think there was a, something I read a long time ago that Ewan McGregor was supposed to star in this movie and that Christian Bale actually called him up and all but begged him to not take the part. So he could have it, and because uh, he just felt like he he knew this character inside and out, and Bell's got a long history of weird things he does, uh, not just for prepping for a movie, but his obsessions and things, and you know, you know, like when he did the Cheney thing. There's interviews with him with doing the Dick Cheney performance, which I didn't see that film, but um, you know, he has to find something, and once he finds it, he just goes full tilt. But evidently, with the American Psycho thing, he had found it. He already knew it. Um, I love how kind of sly the materialism is throughout the movie. It it, but it's overbearing at the same time. Yeah, like yeah. there's moments like really weird, like small moments, like with the right after the threesome. I hate to keep going back to that scene, but right after that, where one girl rolls over and he's like, "Don't touch the watch." It's like what yeah. the hell? You know, it's it's so crazy to me, and you know that's what's important to him is is things like that, the material things. And, you know, he's got a really nice stereo. It kind of comes down to a little bit of what we talked about with Schrader's American Gigolo. 
and how important material things are to the the character in that the is was adrian was his name i can't remember what his name was in that film richard gears character but if you think about it that was also kind of a psychotic character mm-hmm. uh certainly a selfish character no doubt and you know to to look away from these characters in our culture i think is more of a crime than to to evaluate them i think that's more important well, when, when we look away from them we allow what they do to happen yes exactly well, that's that that right there in a nutshell. What you just said is is part of the problem we face as a culture in America. We tend to, if somebody's mentally ill, we tend to push them to the by side. You know, just just put them on the sideline. Like, yeah, he's he's got problems, but you know what? It's not my problem, so I'm going to go well, over because this way. we well we also don't have an easy solution for any yeah, of these things. Yeah. there's well, no easy solutions to just about everything that we have going on right now, and whether or not whether or not we you know what caused these things god only knows i couldn't you know there's no there's no tipping point for any yeah. of this shit yeah. um yeah i agree but we also we also really haven't made any great strides in in how we deal with these things in general to begin with no i don't do think I, we you have. know do i think that it's that there's one one specific answer i would be hard pressed to you know i mean yeah. you could sit here and you could go down the whole, not to, not really, not to get political, but uh, I'm going to have to anyway. Is that you know you could make it all about you know whether it's the the, the availability of, of uh, firearms. Would that you know would things change if uh, if people weren't allowed to to get their hands on a, a gun uh, as easily as they are? Well, yeah. you could make an argument, man, because you see all this other stuff everywhere else where. Um, Things are happening from people, whether it be because of you know they're actually psychotic or whether they they have this uh, they are um, what's the word I'm looking for um, indoctrinated into uh, certain mental you know religious beliefs. Yeah, um, it's interesting you though. It. Yeah, it's interesting though because you know like for me you know uh, living in the South and you know you know I've been surrounded by guns my whole life. I don't own any, so have I. But I've been surrounded by guns my whole life, but never have been near any gun violence no uh and have never felt uncomfortable around people with guns nope um i'm not going to stay i'm not going to state on the show one way or another my thoughts on guns but it is interesting that people again i think social media is part of the problem here uh the people make right. broad statements i mean if you want to see america's mental illness join a social media <laughs> oh, yeah. join any of them and you'll see mental illness everywhere yeah, and uh, and on both sides of the coin, I don't care yeah. what anybody says. I mean, you know, it's just it's amazing to me. But anyway, yeah, that, no, it's not. It's not. There's nobody that's. There's nothing. There's no side that's blameless. Yes, that's that's correct. That's correct. If you think you are, then you're part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, I just think you know that these kind of films lead to good conversation. If anything, again, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I love everybody in the movie though. Willem Dafoe's great. Christian Bale, mm-hmm. I love. I love a lot. Again, I like him a lot more than you do. Um, Chloe Sevigny is she's wonderful. She's to me, she's one of the most natural beauties of all time. I mean, I just I love her. I always have. I think she's a great actress too. Um, so many great performances in this, and and little moments too. Even Justin Theroux is great as this kind of little nebbish kind of shithead, and uh, <laughs> I don't really care for him either. And but there's great moments. Josh Lucas, who I totally forgot was even in the movie. Yep. Reese Reese Witherspoon, who I forgot was in the movie. Yep. Kind of going back to Samantha Mathis. Yeah. Samantha Mathis is great in her little spot. Uh, Jared yep. Leto's great in his little performance. 
there's just so many really kind of great moments and stuff and it's it's really uh it's kind of a cultural milestone type of film i don't again i don't think it's a perfect movie but it reminds me of something like you know like how midnight cowboy affected uh movies in a way and how things like that i, I wouldn't put it up there with midnight cowboy but i would say that it's it's a pivotal social movie uh, and I think it's important in that way. I think it's a mixed bag, but I think it's a very strong mixed bag. Okay. And uh, that's pretty much all I'll say. I don't really have much uh, else to say. I mean, you've covered the story pretty much, and I don't really have much to add to that story, the story elements really at all that I can think of outside of the fact that I'm not even sure what takes place, what's reality and what's fantasy in this movie. And yeah, maybe maybe yeah, I'm not yeah. supposed no, to. No, I get that. Yeah, maybe I'm not supposed to. So. And maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. And maybe that's, you know, hey, if that's the case, then maybe it's more brilliant than we're both uh, led to believe. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Uh, okay, so uh, MVT's make or breaks. Uh, MVT, I'm going to go with Heron. Um, I think that she really displays some solid technical chops. Uh, and she really has a um, – She, I think she does a uh, – she displays a pretty assured hand with, the, with satire and mayhem, I think, in the movie. Uh, so kudos to her for that. Make or break. I am gonna go. I'm gonna go with the first hooker scene uh, because I think that it's really kind of the purest representation of the film's critiques uh, in a way. Um, and plus, it you know it's just one of those things where it's a bit more transgressive than anything else that we've seen up until that point. So, uh, for those who were not uh, willing to go along with that, they might tune out at that point. Uh, score for me. I'm going. I'm going 7.25 out of 10. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I still, I like the film. Um, I do think it has, it has a lot to offer. I do yeah. think that, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like any, any good movie. Uh, it allows you to, it allows you to, um, you know, have a, a conversation about it one way or the other, like we just did. Uh, and, you know, kind of put, uh, put different spins on, uh, on things that you already know that are in common about it. So, yeah. uh, I like that. And then I, I um, yeah, I'm not going to say anything else. Yeah, um, I think we're mostly on the same page with this thing. To be honest with you, okay. Um, my make or break is the the Paul Allen murder. I think it's a very important, pivotal moment in the scene uh, in the movie. I mean, and it mm-hmm. really works for me. Um, okay, so I'm looking through this film. I was looking through. I was looking to see where Velvet Goldmine fell. Because that's where you e- McGregor and I like Velvet Goldman. Have you ever seen Velvet Goldman? Uh, no. We should watch that at some point. Maybe we should review it on the show. Anyway, um, I was looking just at uh, Bale's filmography, and uh, mm-hmm. I would say this is his coming out party. This is, you know, this is the Christian oh, God, Bale. Yeah. yeah, this is the Christian Bale we come to know uh, mm-hmm. from this point on. He'd done some good stuff before then, but this is the one we come to know, and pretty much him becoming the actor he's become over the years now. Um, anyway, um, oh, he's going to be in Thor love and thunder. How about that? I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I believe he might be playing Mephisto. Uh, that would, uh, might be, that, might be, that would be, uh, apropos. Yeah, right. Um, but I really like that scene with him and Jared Leto. I think they're really doing well. I think Jared Leto is another actor who I think people take or leave, but I, I think he's a really good actor as well. Um, I, I I like those two working together. I like that scene. I think a lot is said in that scene. And uh, if anything, the dancing is hilarious. Um, 
<laughs> my MVT, I'm going to go Bale on this one. I actually, there's a few other Mary Heron films I like a little bit more, but I like the, but she's really good. She, she comes really close to being uh, the MVT for this for me, but I really like Bale in this. I mean, he is full tilt going for it. I'll give him credit for that because it's a brave and what could have been, honestly, it could have been a performance that ruined his career. It could have been one of those. This could be one of those movies that could have went the complete opposite way for him. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, it could have. It could have wound up being just a trash horror movie. Yeah, and he could have just completely ruined his career. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he turned it into everything else, and you know, he's done. He's done some smart things, you know, by being Batman and things like that. Uh, you know, he's done some smart things with his career, which I think allows him to work uh, and continue to work. Anyway. Uh, my score is just a little bit higher than yours, 7.5 out of 10. Um, I agree with everything you say, though, uh, and everything you were talking about. I mean, I think we're on the same page with this movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's really solid, but um, I don't think misguided is the word, but just a little, I think lost might be the word. I don't know if misguided and lost are the same thing, but. No, they're not. They don't, you know, I just, that's how I feel about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, no, for, I the, what you're saying, yeah. for those who love it, you know, great. I, I think it's great that you love it that much. I just yeah, I don't, more power to you. Yeah, I just don't see it being a a five star movie. I just don't. I just don't understand it. But anyway, neither here nor there. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. That is the show. How you like that? <laughs> Bringing it down a notch. Taking it down. I feel like I need a cigarette after. Yeah. This show. Ooh. Don't just stare at it, Todd. Smoke it. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> next week, uh, we're doing Diabolic DVD, I believe. Um, so if you want to, yes. I think you're programming. So if you want to tell everybody what we're doing. Uh, we are doing uh, the, 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 the Taste of Tea uh, from 2003 from, uh, oh, damn it. I cannot remember his name right off the top of my head. It's way too early in the morning. But it's a Japanese movie, uh, Third Window Films, just came out with a Blu-ray a little a little while ago, uh, Region 2, and uh, yeah, we're doing that. And we're doing Penelope Spheris's, uh Suburbia, mm. so uh, getting some uh, some punk rocking back into my life. Yeah, one I've seen, one I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen The Taste of Tea. I've read about it a couple times. I've never seen it. Uh, Suburbia, I have not seen. Jesus, it's been a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while for me too. It's been a few years. Yeah. Uh, but I, it's a. Uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, cards on the table time. Uh, both of these movies, I like a great deal. So okay, well, there we go. Just to uh, catch out of the back. Now I don't have to record next week, so you can you have go. fun. You're done. Uh, do it yourself. You're done. And, yeah, yeah. You've you've thrown it out there. <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, it'll be fun to revisit them either way. I mean, again, that's why I love doing the show is because it gives me an excuse to go back and watch Penelope Spears' Suburbia and to see The Taste of Tea, which I've never seen. Damn <laughs> so, straight. There we go. Yeah, no, I, I hope you dig it. Hope so, too. We will find out. We will definitely find out. Oot. Um, all right. That's the big show. Uh, with that, I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com